Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Mafia, ZipRecruiter, and our contributors at Patreon.com. There is an ancient Indian religion known as Jain Dharma. Up to 5 million people practice it today, and it follows four main principles. Nonviolence, many-sided reality, non-attachment, and adherence to several vows. It's a complex belief system that we could never effectively impart here, but there is something fascinating about its doctrine that is pertinent to the topic at hand. Jains believe that time has no beginning and no end. It is eternal, and that the Kalakakra, which is the cosmic wheel of time, rotates ceaselessly, alternating between an ascending time cycle and a descending time cycle, the former being a period of increasing happiness and diminishing sorrow, and the latter being the opposite. What is fascinating to us about these cycles of time is the description of the people that live in them. Each of the two cycles is divided into six auras, which are periods of unequal time. According to the Jains, we're currently in the fifth of these six auras on the descending cycle. This aura is known as the Dusama. It is defined by sorrow, and the average height of the people living in it is six feet tall, and their average lifespan is 130 years. The people who lived in the most recent aura prior to ours were said to be nearly one mile tall, with an average lifespan of 706 quintillion years. But the heights do not stop there. The people from the aura before that were two miles tall, and lived exponentially longer. In the aura before that, they jumped up to four miles. And in the period preceding that, the first of the current downward cycle, they were six miles tall, and they lived in utmost happiness with no sorrow and had lifetimes spanning trillions upon trillions of years. These astonishingly tall giants are the largest ones of any legend in any culture that we could find. But here's the fascinating thing to remember. If you adhere to any of this at all, we're in the fifth of the six auras on this downward cycle now. In the final aura, people will only grow to one foot tall and live 20 years at the most. If that comes to pass, we will have been the giants of their antiquity. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Carl Stryken. It is happening again. I am on Astonishing Legends. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on giants, including an interview with seven-foot-tall actor Carl Stryken, 
whom you may know from Twin Peaks, as well as many other performances. And we're back. Man, I gotta tell you what, I am giddy. I cannot believe that Carl Stryken agreed to do that quote for us at the top of the show. He is a movie and TV icon. As soon as you see him, you instantly recognize him from his great roles in Twin Peaks, The Addams Family, and uh, Men in uh, Black. Men in Black. He was the giant uh, that was the friend of the main guy that had the galaxy, remember? Oh, that's, yes, exactly. Yeah. No, he's very, like I said, very iconic, also very down to earth and very friendly. He really gave us a great interview. He's an interesting person and uh, very friendly and has had a really fascinating life and he's still going strong. Yeah, yeah. Just an all around artist, I would say and very generous that he agreed to record those bits for us and probably also just wants to be done with us. <laughs> I think just, is, it, is this the last thing I have to do? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> no, that was very cool of him. And, uh, and, and again, I was a huge fan of at least the original Twin Peaks was when I first saw him. And Marty and I were roommates at the time, and we I, I think it came out of Friday nights, and we were just like, what is going on? This is mind-blowing. We'd never seen anything like it on TV. Well, in the new round of it, it's just as confusing. In yeah. fact, he's in kind of, he's in the wildest episode of the new round of Twin Peaks. That is true. Eight. It it's is basically amazing. an hour of video art, yeah. in a sense. Yeah. And just David visually Lynch. stunning. And he talks about what it was like to be a part of that It's a really interesting conversation with an all-around great guy. That's coming up later in the show. Uh, But meanwhile, let's do the housekeeping real quick. So first, a quick correction going all the way back to part one of this series. I think I said that Lanza Meadows National Historic Site, you know, the one that has the archaeological dig and reconstructed Viking settlement, was in Nova Scotia. But it's actually at the very northern tip of the peninsula of Newfoundland which is just northeast of Nova Scotia. So I was in the very general area, but a different province altogether. Gosh, I hope that's right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a different chunk of land, let's say we, that. Yeah. Keep, yeah, we'll need to ask Jordan on a part of it. Exactly. Well, th- but that was pointed out to us by one of our terrific fans who actually lives there, Josh Leslie, and Newfoundland is his home province. So thanks, Josh, for pointing that out. Not only for pointing it out, but for being nice about it. Oh, yes, we appreciate that, too. (laughs) All right, some light housekeeping tonight. First thing we'd like to say is please remember to support our sponsors. Along with our amazing patrons at patreon.com, they're the ones paying the bills around here and keeping the show free to listen to. And they only come back if you guys support them from time to time. So thank you for doing that. In other news, our hat supplier was out of black hats last time we tried to order, so we're working on that, but we did get some brand new maroon ones, and they're super cool. So head on over to our store at astonishinglegends.com to get one of those or any of our various t-shirts, stickers, or our famous whiskey mug. You know, that's just a coffee mug. But if you put whiskey in it, it's... Yeah, still just a coffee mug with some whiskey in it. Whatever, man. All right, well, in other news... We just did a couple of interviews, and they haven't all run yet, and we'll remind you when they do, but we were recently guests on a podcast called Crawl Space, True Crime and Mysteries, hosted by Lance and Tim. Yeah, that's a great missing persons true crime show, but they also do these bonus episodes that they release on their main feed called The Cellar Series, where they have hosts on from other shows. And we were honored that they invited us to come over there, and we had a real blast with them in our bold experiment to determine if true crime and paranormal mystery listeners intersect at all. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. <laughs> we might cover a few. I have got a few lined up there in the, uh, in the old hopper that are freaky. Yeah. That do intersect. So well, there you go. maybe down the line. But it was a great time 
time chatting with these guys that we're all of a like mind. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So look for that. Uh, yeah. You know, we also just sat down with Jeremy over at the podcasts we listen to show for four hours of candid conversation. Really? Was it four hours? It was four total. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm yeah. so sorry for that guy, but you know, <laughs> but it was, it was a candid conversation about life and the show and everything. And it was really behind the scenes for us. We yeah. talked a lot about how we do what we do if that's anything at all. And how in reality we just can't stand each other and don't don't hang out <laughs> at like, all. <laughs> I'm like Bun E. Carlos from Cheap Trick, who, who just leave after practice and <laughs> never see those guys unless it was a concert. So that, that's what I heard anyway. But no, we're, we're all good friends here, but we had a great time chatting with him. And uh, that's a great show to listen to. And of course... We were answering questions submitted by the folks at the Podcasts We Listen To Facebook group. Uh, Yeah, it was awesome. We had a great time. And you can subscribe to both Crawl Space, True Crime and Mysteries, and the show Podcasts We Listen To anywhere you get your podcasts. Now, technically, we've already published more than 99 shows, but those weren't all episodes. So in reality, this one right here is 99. Which means that next week is episode 100. A blowout first-of-its-kind show for us, during which we will have a roundtable with Tess Feifel for her first appearance on the show, as well as our most senior Astonishing Research Corps or ARC members for a panel, in which we will listen to and pick apart stories from ARC contributors themselves. It's going to be a blast, so stay tuned for that. All right, let's get cooking. But before we get started, as we've said before, our guests' statements and opinions are their own. But also keep in mind that the ideas and opinions associated with information that we present on the show do not necessarily reflect our own personal viewpoints. Right. We're not necessarily agreeing with everything or anything we're presenting in some cases. We're merely presenting it for your entertainment and edification. And you can make of it what you want. We'd like to remind you all of this because as we ourselves were a little surprised to find out, this subject of giants can kind of get a tad controversial. Who knew? <laughs> well, probably all the folks that have already been interested in or have researched giants. It goes right to the heart of that old chestnut, personal belief. Seems like we're always going to be juggling that hot potato. So diving into where we were last week, the first thing I wanted to remind everybody is what we talked about in mm. The Tall Ones Part 2. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about Spanish Hill and the mounds there. We talked a little bit about the mounds in general and the mound cultures, which is its own huge thing. Yeah. But specifically about Spanish Hill and that legendary story of giant skeletons and, of course, the horned skull. You know, I think we both heard growing up just giant skeletons being found, the Cardiff giant. Did I mention that? Featured on a, an episode of Kung Fu. Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or, or something like it, where he came across these guys trying to fake this giant stone mummified creature. This, Ripped from the headlines. Yeah, well, <laughs> as much as they could back then. My point is that we'd always heard of uh, giant bones, but when you have a skeleton that has horns on it, that's yeah. a whole different thing, as I said in part two. Yeah. Because now it's not really human, if right. if, at least if they're symmetrical, again, and not the growth of hair keratin you know, that comes out of somebody's forehead sometimes. Yes. We're talking like pagan looking, the horn god type of the skeleton here. So what's going on there? So that, of course, grabs your attention. And it had with people in the 1890s, apparently, with a sighting like that in Spanish Hill in South Waverly, right? Yeah. Yes, okay. Pennsylvania. Right. We also talked a little bit about the picture of that horned skull, that it goes along with that story and is all over the internet. You'll see it everywhere. You'll actually see it associated with this episode of the show. And how researcher Micah Ewers tracked that picture down and got some provenance on it from the person who supposedly 
owns the skull. Well, we dug into that too. Micah's pretty much had nailed it down, but we wanted to go even further. And it turned out that it belongs to a guy known only as the Collector. Yes, the main guy. That's the main guy who we do not have a name for, but working for the Collector, we have the Curator. Uh This, of course, makes sense. Now, the Curator is a man named Christian Shellman, who lives in Brussels, in Belgium, and is himself a magician. In fact, it says on the Wikipedia page for him, which is a very sparse page, I might add, Christian Shellman is a Belgian magician born in 1957. He specializes in close-up magic, card magic, mentalism, bizarre magic, storytelling magic, and fantastic illusionism. Boy, if that does not pique our interest, I don't know what does. <laughs> then we got to get him on. In, in November 2012, yeah. as guest lecturer, he was bestowed an honorary lifetime member of Psychrets. That's spelled like P-S-Y, Psychrets. Yeah. British Society of Mystery Entertainers at their Tabula Mentis 13 event, Roman numeral 13. So interesting guy to say the least, Probably not necessarily going to get the straightest answer out of him, considering he's involved in storytelling magic. Magicians never give up their secrets or even hints of them. Unless you're another magician, you can sometimes buy a trick from them. Yes, of course. Right, which is interesting because it's a thought. It's a clever procedure. But what it sounds like to me is that someone is collecting very strange and supremely interesting occult objects, and it's a real collection. It sounds like to me anyway. Well, yeah, and that's what Micah had found out. Micah Ewers had found out. There's going to be a couple of Micahs that we refer to in the show tonight. At least two. Yeah, Yeah. we talked about it in last week's show, but there is this website called the Cernateum, and it's indicated that it has this collection of strange occult objects. I think it's not too different necessarily from sort of the type of things that Ed and Lorraine Warren did, but in this case, it has more of a magical bent to it. And Christian, who I gather is the curator, Tessa reached out to him, and he wrote her back and said the exact same thing he told Micah Ewers for his research that he did for the book Giants on Record, written by Hugh Newman and Jim Vieira. And this is what he said to us, the curator. It's not a giant skull, but a human-sized ritual skull made for a pan-cult revival during the 18th century at Painswick, Gloucestershire. Yours, the curator. That's how he signed it. Uh, Here's what's fascinating about this. I looked into this a little bit because I was curious about why you would have an artifact like this. And I found this book called The Triumph of the Moon, A History of Modern Pagan Witchcraft. And this comes from pages 161 and 162. This is out of context, but you'll understand once I get going. One of these occurred at the old limestone village of Painswick on the scarp of Gloucestershire's Cotswold Hills in 1885. It was then that a new vicar, W.H. Seddon, took charge of the parish and immediately proved to be a keen classicist and antiquarian. He learned that until the 1830s, a procession in honor of Pan had taken place at Painswick each spring, starting at the church and ending in some woods to the north. Seddon decided to revive it. He was especially excited to discover that the rallying cry for the procession was remembered as having been high gates, high gates. This was likely, in fact, to have been Hyatt's, Hyatt's, meaning the house of Benjamin Hyatt. That's H-Y-E-T-T, not Hyatt like the hotels in America. H-Y-E-T-T. Benjamin Hyatt was a local worthy who had sponsored the event in the mid to late 18th century and whose mansion in the woods had been its finishing point. 
Seddon, however, did not know this and decided firmly that it derived from the Greek aegitis, goat lover, and was the call to Pan used by the original revelers in a pagan ceremony from which the custom had descended. He insisted that it be readopted as part of the restored event and had a statue of Pan installed near the church tower as a point of commencement. He published a booklet on the village's folklore, Painswick Feast, in which he stated that not everything pagan is bad, and our Christian forefathers took a wise view of this matter. His prime piece of evidence for this last piece of information was the survival of the procession. What he did not realize is that all the actual evidence suggests that the latter was a piece of antiquarian fancy created in the 18th century by a group of local gentry with classical enthusiasms of whom Hyatt was a leader. Nobody seems to have criticized Seddon for his revival, nor was he condemned by his superiors. The event long survived him until 1950, when a more puritanical vicar at last suppressed it and had the statue buried. This was interesting for me to find because I felt a little bit because of the possibility of the showmanship of the curator on Mm. behalf of the collector at the Cernitaeum talking about this item as a pan-cult object. I just kind of wanted to verify that there was a relationship to Painswick, which, of course, now if he's making up this artifact, which I think is possible because he's a magical storyteller— Yeah. Of course, he's going to connect it to a town that he knows is associated with this pan ritual, because it sounds to me like the Painswick pan ritual is something that might be fairly well known to locals, even though it was stopped in 1950. But it's interesting that you can find it here in this book. The other thing that's fascinating, which I thought was interesting, especially in light of the recent launch by SpaceX of Elon Musk's Tesla Roadster into a billion-year orbit around the sun— was that he put on the screen, which anyone who watched this rocket launch saw, this car is now in space. If you missed this, you got to go find the YouTube videos. It was really amazing. I was geeking out on Twitter. Uh, people were making fun of me. But <laughs> right on the screen, it says, don't panic. Yeah. Which is taken from that amazing book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Everybody, Douglas Adams. Everybody knows it from Douglas Adams' book. Yeah. Don't panic. Well, the word panic turns out to come from pan. Oh. Which I thought was really interesting. So it's a little bit of tie into current events because supposedly it was a sound that Pan would make. He was the god of the hunt and yeah, he lived sexuality, in the woods, sexuality, yeah, fertility, a, all that stuff. And uh, flutes. Flutes. <laughs> well, he had, yeah. his, he had his pan flutes. <laughs> his one flute. Yeah. Yes. But I guess if you woke him from a slumber unexpectedly, he would let out this really blood curdling sound right. in the woods that would cause animals to stampede. Yeah. And this was a sound that struck fear into the hearts of men. That is the root of the word panic. That's where that comes from, which I had never really connected. Well, again, these are the bigger themes, the duality between man and animal, the joining point. He's both, in a sense. So he's of the forests and the fields, but he's also kind of human. Yeah. Yeah, if you startle him, he lets out a a shriek like you've never heard before. Well, listen to this from uh, merriamwebster.com, the definition of panic. Panic comes to us from French panique, which in turn derives from Greek Panikos, meaning literally of Pan. Pan is the pipe-playing, nymph-chasing Greek god of fertility, pastures, flocks, and shepherds. His name is a Doric contraction of Paeon, meaning pasturer. He also has a rather dark side. His shout is said to have instilled fear in the giants fighting the gods. And the Greeks believed him responsible for causing the Persians to flee in terror at the Battle of Marathon. 
Panic entered our language first as an adjective, suggesting the mental or emotional state that pan was said to induce. The adjective first appeared in print at the beginning of the 17th century, and the noun followed about a century later. So it's interesting. That skull, while not necessarily connected to giants and by the curator's own words, Mm -hmm. it's connected to this pan cult ritual that is part of Painswick, Gloucestershire, in England. Well, I I know that Greek classical themes were very popular in the 18th and 17th centuries because it was something you could paint that was fantastical and nobody would get on your case for it. So you have some portraits and you have a lot of the fantasy, the fun things to paint were these classical scenes. And so you see a lot of art like that. So that theme to me carries within people's proclivities, shall we say, Indeed. In, in their private spare time prancing about in the woods. Well, yeah, and that's what these guys were doing. And they were holding up the statue and marching through the woods. And that one vicar they were talking about in that book, in the broader context of that part that I read, was going out into the woods and didn't even realize there used to be a house there yeah. from earlier times that they would always go with this tradition. But he revived it. Yeah. An unusual guy to be reviving it until yeah. a puritanical vicar shut it down in 1950. Right. Well, it's well done. It's got kind of a garland on it, as you can see, some kind of decorative thing uh, around the crown. The skull. The skull does. Yeah, and yeah. we don't know that it's part of that, but we do know that it makes sense for the curator to say that it came from that region. Yes, it does. And be associated right. with pan cult behavior. It could be very likely. It could be a very real object. You know, I was in pottery class and, and actually made a skull when I was in class. And we, <laughs> right, because everybody you, does. Well, that's like our super yeah. original logo. Yeah, that or, a, or you, you know, <laughs> or you made a bong that the teacher just thought was a very skinny vase. But I made a skull <laughs> that was kind of a planter thing, but you fired it. So if you didn't fire the clay, everybody kind of knows what that looks like. It's a terracotta feel. That's kind of the impression I get with this. Plus a horn is broken off. Yeah. So what we know is that it's not an actual bone. Yeah. It is not bone. Not even the curator is saying that this is real. It's not a giant skull. These are all the things we've, you know, Well, we've so confirmed. far all we've seen is a blurry photo of it. Shout out to you guys at Blurry Photos, but like, <laughs> which is a good show. If you haven't heard it, check it out. But it's just a blurry photo of the skull. And then we've got this guy who's pretending to be other people and he's a magician. And like, I'm not sure. I did find a video of him online talking to someone, albeit in French, which I did take four years of, but still couldn't quite follow. If I right. listened really slowly, maybe I could have. Yeah. And Belgian he had, French, too. Oh, yeah, Belgian French. He had all these shelves behind him with all kinds of artifacts on him, and I combed through that video trying to see if that uh, skull was in the background on one of those shelves, but I didn't see it. No, but there are people who do collect occult curios. Well, let, let me look at our uh, friends of the show, Greg and Dana, over at Week and Weird. Yeah. They have a traveling museum of the paranormal. Yeah, they have, and they have some pretty amazing stuff. Oh, yeah, some very spooky things. Haunted dolls, haunted objects. Yes. Uh, African, and there's one, a, a witch's doll with nails in its eyes. Some yeah, very... well, they have the crone, which refused to be scanned by a 3D scanner. Oh, that's right, yes. There's a video of them trying to scan that so they can model it in their computer. And when they put it in front of the scanner, the scanner refuses to look at it. Well, it, it, they, do, so they it were was saying, not working. And, and yeah, they he, said yeah. it was blocking it somehow. Yeah, it was electronically not working because they did an EVP and the object itself, as they claimed, uh, or the spirit contained within it was... It was afraid. It didn't know what they were doing. Are you trying to mock me somehow? Are you trying to steal my spirit? And and then they had to explain what they were doing, like preserving your memory and and trying to preserve your image. And he was like, okay, I'll allow that. Yeah, boy. It's kind of weird stuff. But anyway, people do collect these things. So I believe that this could be real, but I'm kind of glad that we've at least established that it has nothing to do with the Sayer find of the large skeletons. It is not a horned god, and it is not the Nephilim. 
So I just finished the lecture, Egypt in the Pyramid Age, from the course Origins of Great Ancient Civilizations over at the Great Courses Plus, and not one mention of ancient aliens. <laughs> really? You were expecting Professor Harl to suggest aliens as possibly helping build the pyramids. Well, I thought it might be funny to include that hypothesis, but you gotta admit, how the pyramids were built is still a controversial topic, with a lot of independent researchers putting forth all kinds of ideas about architectural feats that still boggle our minds today. Well, you're right about that. Some of those theories about the pyramids get way out there. (laughs) But if you want to know more about a historical mystery, I always recommend not starting at the fringe and working your way in, but starting at a base of academic research and then working your way out, which is what the Great Courses Plus gives you you a solid university-level academic understanding of each topic. Well, one thing I can clear up about pyramid building is the common misconception that the pyramids were built by slaves. In reality, they were built by the peasant population of Egypt in the early Old Kingdom. This was possible because from about five to six months out of the year, the Nile flooded and the peasants didn't have much to do except wait for the waters to recede and then go back to planting crops in the river silt deposits. And to give you an idea about the scale of the Great Pyramid, it's usually estimated that during the work season of three to four months, as many as 100,000 men, maybe one out of five adult males in the Nile Valley, were employed by the pharaoh Khufu. And then you can extrapolate that and estimate that it took around 24 million man-hours to construct it, and without advantages like pulleys, draft animals, or bronze. And it's still standing at 480 feet high, 786 feet in a perfect square at the base, and covering nearly 13 acres. Man, we love learning about this kind of stuff. And if you're anything like us, then you're really going to love having access to over 9,000 lectures about everything from ancient history to the latest in food and travel. And now you can have unlimited sampling of these courses by signing up for a free trial over at The Great Courses Plus using our special URL. That's right. Start exploring today by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, The Great Courses Plus dot com slash legends. I'm Jen Cash, and I listen to Astonishing Legends with my dog Andy. In fact, he wants to get back to the show. So now we're really going to focus on an article we found online from one of our favorite writers here, Micah Hanks. Yeah, I I really love Micah. He used to do a show with Jim Harold, which I don't think they're still keeping up. But Micah was Jim's second host on it, right? But it was yeah. called the Paranormal Report, which was sort of a was it weekly? It well, a, like, back way back when when I first started listening, Clayton Morris used to do a Paranormal right. Report, which is a new, more of the topical news stuff of the week. You know, right. weird stuff happened, and so that's a lot of fun. They were on camera. They were like news reporters bringing up weird stuff, and so then Clayton got busy. His life got busier with uh, his journalism. And Micah stepped in for a while and was doing it. Now, that's a hard thing to, to do every week. And I know Micah is very prolific. He's yeah, he's a prolific blogger. Yeah. He's written several books. Oh, yeah. He's also part of the brain trusts of uh, Mysterious Universe and contributing articles. Yep. Just like all those guys, Nick Redfern, they're constantly writing and producing and researching and blows us away. Yeah. They really keep their finger on the pulse of what's going on. He also lives in my home state, North Carolina. Yes, that's right. I think he lives in Asheville. I'm trying to catch up with him next time I'm there. You hear that, Micah? (laughs) Following you on Twitter. Send me a DM. (laughs) You'll have dueling (laughs) faint accents. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we really love his approach because I think he represents the middle ground where he is taking a critical eye at these subjects really trying to provide some solid research as best as he can. He's a really effective researcher, really effective, and he calls himself a skeptical but open-minded. 
Which, exactly. I yeah. think that's what we try to strive for, is that yeah. he's considering everything without being cynical and throwing some things out that maybe you just don't agree with. You'll still consider them, because that's part of being an open mind. It's like, take a look at it. So Right. And so what we're about to refer to with relation to Micah is a blog entry that he made that talks about this whole giant scenario, which everybody who's in our field sooner or later does it. They all do it. It's kind of like a Lisa Lamb. Everybody's done the other. We haven't done it yet, but boy, has it oh, been done. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah, it's a very popular thing, but I, I believe that the reason we're going to focus on this in depth is that it really frames the general debate about your position on whether you believe that really long, tall skeletons were actually found and what the outcome of that was, and if they were properly cataloged by museums, or is there a conspiracy afoot to suppress that kind of find and that information and even the questioning of a find like that? Well, and that's where the battle came forth, because Micah had written an entry on his website, micahhanks.com, about this, where he sort of got into it with a skeptical blogger and researcher who we also respect and have checked out his material quite often in our research, Jason Colavito. Yes, he's uh, one of the, I would say, four or five skeptical writers and, you know, authors that we've mentioned before, Joe Nickel, Brian Dunning, Jason Colavito, Sharon Hill, some of the best, I think, critical thinking out there. And uh, we consider them just as well as anybody else. We always look to one of their sources to see what they've written. They don't chime in on everything, but at this point, they've done a lot of different subjects. And of course, Jason Colavito has tackled the subject of giants and the possibility thereof. Yes. And what has actually been found. And he questions is anything really anomalous ever been found? Or are they just like tall people and that's it? And so here's the name of the article, Big Buried Secrets, Giant Skeletons, and the Smithsonian, article by Micah Hanks. And we'll have a link to that, of course, but we're going to go through this argument here because, like I said, I believe it's a very fair and balanced approach about where the, the thinking is, whether this is just bunkum or is there something to this? And they do get into it a little bit. Which makes the debate interesting. Yeah. So essentially the article starts off with this question that's long been asked, have giant skeletons been discovered throughout the Americas? And if this is the case, is the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. actively trying to cover up these discoveries? And why? So the main points of this are that there does not seem to be any existing evidence of bones large enough to be considered giant. Now, for me personally, as we've said before, you then have to ask yourself, well, what is a giant? What constitutes a giant human being? What's interesting is what's formed here is that there is a threshold. And that threshold, as we'll see, has been pointed out, seven to eight to nine feet. And anything past nine feet gets into the strange territory of unbelievable now. You've pressed it too far. Right. <laughs> because we've seen there have been eight-foot-tall people. So we know that it's possible to reach those heights. But in this article, Micah is pointing out that conspiracy theorists would suggest that there is an active cover-up by museums and, quote-unquote, the establishment. Now, he's not saying that himself, that he's suggesting that. He's just pointing out— He's acknowledging out, that it's he, out there. Exactly. And there are some very impassioned viewpoints about this. Oh, yeah. No, that's what we're saying. Once you start researching it, you notice that, that there are sides and there are camps to this thing. Yeah. And they sometimes don't get along. And there is a middle ground of people that where we're trying to tread lightly here, like, well, let's see what's out there. 
and uh, see what's what and see what the evidence presents. And there are those like Jason Colavito who says, you know what, none of this is really that extraordinary. So the following is a passage written by Jason Colavito that Micah Hanks has included in his article as kind of a response. So there's statements going back and forth, just so you know the setup. And Micah is presenting this, and he's going to respond to this in a bit. But basically, this is the argument two and four, something extraordinary and worth checking out. So Jason Colavito writes, the, quote, reports, unquote, from old newspapers are assumed true, in parentheses here, by conspiracy theorists. So the fact that no such remains exist or ever existed at the Smithsonian is now proof of a cover-up. The claim that the Smithsonian had the skeletons of giants, incidentally, does not appear in the literature of the 19th century, when these giant bones were allegedly consigned to the museum, presumably. The biblical literalists of the day would have made as much of them as they did of the Cardiff giant, and yet it was not so. In fact, as early as 1865, the Smithsonian published a document by Duc Grote de Blanville following Cuvier, attributing, quote, giant, unquote, humanoid bones to mastodons. Okay, so you understand what he's saying, right, is that there's no reports that exist that other than from really old newspapers of the day. I mean, it seems to me that he's saying any cases that there are where people might have believed it may have been misidentification of I mean, other believe, fossil remains. Yeah, it's a, another common thing we found in our research is that animal bones, uh, yeah. again, mastodon bones have been mistaken for like giant femurs. Yeah. And the femur is the best bone for measurement of estimated height. Yeah, it turns out there's a formula you can use to determine the height of a person based on the femur. Exactly. So again, what he's saying is that if there were reports, this is the time in the 1860s to the turn of the century when biblical literalists would have really gone nuts with this. Yeah. Had there been like solid reports, because here we go, we're back to having proof. The Old Testament is real. These things once existed, and they existed in the promised land of America. Yeah. So what he's saying is like, come on, there's no reports. I mean, other than you're going to believe some newspaper hack trying to sell papers. Colavito. Yes, Jason Colavito is saying this. So now we go back to what Micah Hanks has to say about that. And he says, Colavito is correct in asserting that there are no indications in the historic record where large, quote, anomalous skeletons, unquote, have gone missing from the Smithsonian. However, this does not mean that such gigantic remains were never found at all. In contrast, one commenter on Colavito's post, Eric Johns, offered an example from 1911 where researchers named Pugh and Hart had found the remains of large, red-haired humans at Sunset Cave close to Lovelock, Nevada. The remains found there were said to be between six and a half and just over seven feet tall, and some of the remains were shipped to the Smithsonian Institute by L.L. Loud, an archaeologist with the University of California, one year later. These notes are still on digital file at the Hearst Museum of Anthropology, unquote, Johns shared, quote, listed under reference number 544, an anthropological expedition of 1913, unquote. But interestingly, Pugh and Hart, while releasing the majority of the remains to the Smithsonian, also managed to keep a number of the strange artifacts and bones they found, including several skulls, which John says remain today at the Humboldt Museum in Winnemucca, Nevada. The boxes contained by the Smithsonian, however, cannot be accounted for so easily. So what we have here is that things have been found and apparently things have been lost. 
and the University of California has misplaced the skeletons. And the same can be said of the Smithsonian, who still have some of Loud's artifacts for their Southwest exhibit at the National Museum of the American Indian, but no giant skeletons anymore. Those have gone missing. So now you're bringing into question, well, where are those pieces? Because the Humboldt Museum in Winnemucca, Nevada, managed to keep theirs, and they're independent. So you can see now there's some chances where you might want to question what is going on here. Is this true? But here's something I don't understand about this, about Eric John's assertion here, is that after NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which we mentioned in part one, I believe, of this series— You cannot display these bones, and if you have them by law, you have to repatriate them to their tribes that they came from. Right. And that was signed into law in 1990. So if Johns is saying that the Humboldt Museum has artifacts, I believe if they're bones, I believe that's illegal. Well, yes, but however, we're talking 1913 in that era. So what's happening here is that one year later, after the anthropological expedition of 1913, so... uh, But see here at the end, it says, John says, remain today at the Humboldt Museum in Winnemucca. There are some pieces in there. Here's the nut of this argument right now. Some things were found in 1913 by these two accredited archaeologists, Pew and Hart, and they shipped some items off to the Smithsonian... And some of the things were kept and, and put on display. Other things, like the giant skeletons, not. And there's no accounting for them. So I think it's a valid question. What happened to those? How come you got some other pieces on display and you've managed to locate and catalog those and display them? But the pieces that might be more controversial, say, somehow went missing and you have no account of them. But there is an account of them being shipped there. And the same thing for the University of California. They managed to misplace some artifacts that might be questionable. But the Humboldt Museum got everything. So I think what people would make of this is that, are these large institutions actively suppressing this stuff? Where are they putting it? Is it going into a Warehouse 13? Why aren't they showing it? Even if these pieces are controversial and make us change our thinking, they should be examined and the public should know about them. So I think that's the basic argument here. There are notes of these items that are still on digital file at the Hearst Museum of Anthropology. And so there is a record. If you're going by old newspaper clippings and articles from the 1890s, those are suspect. You can't really trust those. Some things are going to be right in them. Some things may be exaggerated, as we found with the antlers. You know, some guy digging in the ditch there screams out, hey, look at the antlers. Right. Then it becomes legend immediately without really following up. People just hear skeletons with horns. We're going to run with that. And you could do that back then. So here, though, with more scrutiny and better record keeping, we know that artifacts were found, strange as they were, and some are missing. Now, Jason Colavito responds to John's comment by saying, quote, If six and a half feet tall is a giant, that makes my grandfather at 6'6", Goliath. While unusual for their era, these sizes are not unheard of for human beings and are therefore neither shocking nor supernatural. You know, he's countering that argument saying, like, you're going to have to do better than that to impress me that giants, quote-unquote, have been found. Now, to Micah's point, that's not the point of the statement. The point Micah Hanks is trying to make is that the Humboldt Museum here in Winnemucca 
an independent museum managed to hold on to their skulls and other possibly controversial bits that were discovered at Sunset Cave, but the Smithsonian and the University of California did not. So Micah Hanks summarizes that point by saying, in other words, the mystery has as much to do with the misplacement of a discovery as it does the claims of giant bodies being what were actually uncovered. So that's his point, is that habeas corpus, show me the body. Where's the stuff? They have no explanation for it. But, you know, you were saying you have some facts on the sheer amount of artifacts that the Smithsonian has. Well, you know, there's been repeated accusations against the Smithsonian, including we cast some aspersions on them ourselves when we did the Kincaid's Cave episode. And frankly, when it comes to the Smithsonian, I'm not convinced there are cover-ups. That's, (laughs) you know, that's a bigger fish to fry, which we'll talk about here going forward. But they have a huge inventory. And it's my understanding that at any given time, less than 2% of it is on display. That is an unverified fact that we got from some research we did, but we were unable to confirm it with the Smithsonian. However, this is confirmed. As of August 2016, there were 156 million objects in various Smithsonian institution collections. 2% or less of those are currently on view which is around probably three to four million objects. Wow. The idea of something being lost may simply mean it's uncatalogued or there's just too much to go through and understand, especially if it's not been identified. So you can't imagine the scope of dealing with this stuff. And it's one of the things that Colavito said, the back and forth that happened between him and Hanks on their two blogs also had a long line, you can only imagine, of comments from people pushing both sides of the argument. Words have been exchanged. (laughs) (laughs) Heated words. But uh, one of the things that Colavito talked about and on his blog in response to, you know, some of the back and forth, which he, I have to say, he really stuck with the discussion and kept it going as long as it wanted to go. But he mentioned that he used to work at a museum. He knows what it's like to have all that stuff coming in. Jason has. Yeah. Yeah. And I can only imagine because it's hard to comprehend how you manage all that kind of inventory. So I, I think when a museum loses something or something goes missing, It's not necessarily a nefarious thing. No. But on the other hand, what we talked about, and Colavito talks about this in his piece, he offers up some explanations. Other people don't agree with them. One of the things he talks about is that a lot of times these bones are exposed to freezing and thawing over and over again. True, yeah. So they've been freezing and thawing every year for hundreds of years, if not thousands. And in these cases, what happens is the water gets inside the bones and crystallizes, and then it thaws, and it freezes up and thaws, and it's expansion and contraction over and over. That's what creates potholes. Exactly. And this is the same kind of thing that could wind up stretching the bones. And while it can't stretch any one given bone, like a femur, by several inches, the collective effect on an overall skeleton could be that it makes it look larger than it should be. However, there's others that don't buy that. Still, it's an interesting idea. I think that when you look at the big picture, the other debate that comes up between Micah and Hanks is the fact that Smithsonian itself published that it had found a seven foot three inch skeleton. This is on page 362 of their 12th annual report, which Micah had posted a link to where you could download the whole thing we did. It's 50 megabytes, pretty awesome. Just pages and pages of information. The length from the base of the skull to the bones of the toes was found to be 7 feet 3 inches. It is probable, therefore, that this individual, when living, was fully 7.5 feet high. At the head lay some small pieces of mica and a green substance, probably the oxide of copper, though no ornament or article of copper was discovered. 
This was, by the way, this is important, I thought. I don't think Micah really talked about this here, but it says in the annual, in the Smithsonian Annual Report here, this was the only burial in the mound. And I think that's a significant thing. I don't remember Micah or Colavito talking about it in their exchange here with regard to this particular topic. But that goes to the point that these are possibly unusual individuals. It's not necessarily yeah. a race. Right. And some of the theories that we've read, not only from Micah Hanks, but also from Micah Ewers, who we're going to be talking about his point of view on all this in a little bit. And that's when we were talking about two Micahs. And we've been in touch with Micah Ewers and exchanged several emails over the course of the research for this series. But one of the things that Micah Ewers talks about is the possibility, in his mind anyway, the more research that he's done, this is another Micah who we're going to introduce in a minute, is the idea of these chieftains and leaders and the possibility of these taller folks being more exalted, therefore they get the better burial grounds, yeah. the mounds, the sepulchers, and all that kind of thing. It's not an indication of necessarily a race of beings that are all this size. It's just the important ones got the fancy seats. Exactly. And know? that was, uh, that was uh, yeah, it was Woody Allen says, you want to be up close to the synagogue, the front seats where all the action is. Right. Yeah. So the, the idea, though, is that if you were exalted, and that's another thing I keep poking at here and, and putting this forward, is that the bigger folks in a tribe or gathering are usually put forward as, like, let's get him out there to lead. Yeah. <laughs> He's imposing. Not only physically yeah. in terms of battle, but also maybe politically as well, or in terms of being the leader sure, and the so organizer. It's, it's the most yeah. natural thing. You're the tallest, you're, you're the biggest. If you can kind of just put two sentences together, you you will be the leader. We're just right. going to make you the guy, and uh, you just tell us what to do. And also in battle, you get out there in front and defend us. So that's the idea that keeps coming up, especially, you know, again, I'll do a little point here later on about the height of the English kings. It's just surprising. Yeah. Just as a taster, William Wallace, everybody knows from Braveheart, six feet five, really tall for back then. Yeah. So yeah, these are big, imposing men, but you're right. So anyway, to just kind of recap here where we're at is that Jason Colavito is saying that he could not find any documentation of any giant bones missing from the Smithsonian, or notably missing, except for the claim starting around the mid-20th century when this kind of thinking was getting popular is what he's getting at. So like the 1950s, mid-century, like the UFO craze and all these things, you know, these different ideas are being explored, and then ideas, he's saying of cover-ups and things being suppressed to the people and people doubting their government institutions. That's when this is happening. But before that, he really can't find anything. And what Micah Hanks is saying, like, hold on, there is actually a report published more than 100 years ago by none other than the Smithsonian Institution itself. And that report is an excerpt from 1894 from a section of the 12th Annual Report from the Bureau of Ethnology to the Secretary of the Smithsonian, where Cyrus Thomas and Thomas Powell of the Bureau of Ethnology wrote the passage that Scott just read. So here's an example of something that they believe at the time in this report is seven and a half feet tall, a foot taller than what Jason Colavito is saying is no big deal. Yes. Uh, by the way, I want to quickly point yeah. out, he mentions Goliath. You know, Goliath is the perfect example of a giant, but when you think about this story and how tall Goliath was, you have to remember that there are conflicting reports about his height. True, yes. Depending on what uh, source you go with, and a lot of historians will go with the oldest 
text that they could find, and that's the Dead Sea Scrolls currently. Right. And here's a good overview that I actually found on Wikipedia about the different texts and what heights they give, because there is some discrepancy. So Goliath's stature, as described in various ancient manuscripts, varies. The oldest manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls text of Samuel, the first century historian Josephus, and the fourth century Septuagint manuscripts all give his height as four cubits and a span. So that roughly translates to six feet, nine inches, or 2.06 meters. So it's my understanding that the span can be less than that, because I had read that it was six foot six. Because nine (laughs) inches is half. Well, I'm just saying a span, when your hand's outstretched, it's from the tip of your thumb to your pinky, right? Or your Yeah, but we're talking about people's body parts. These aren't exact measurements. I know, but no one has a (laughs) nine-inch wide hand. I know. I'm just going to—I've got huge hands. I mean, not huge, but I've got big hands. I'm looking at it right now. No, stop bragging. No, 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 but I I know how that came (laughs) out, but I'm I'm just saying no one has a nine-inch hand except maybe Carl Striken. Well, that's what I'm saying, though, is that— But this uh, is for all people. It's not for the giant in town. You know what I'm saying? This is not an exact science, and this— is ancient history, literally. So things are going to vary. Now, here's another example. I just example. think he was 6'6". I don't think he was 6'6". Well, you know I what? don't think a span's 9 inches. Because it's closer to your height. Hey, I'm 6'2". So okay. whereas now the Masoretic text gives this measurement as 6 cubits and a span, and that translates to 9 feet 9 inches or 2.97 meters. Mm-hmm. 6 cubits and a span is expressed as 6 cubits and a hand's breadth. In the Geneva Bible... Nine feet, four inches tall. And in the expanded Bible and the New Century version, over nine feet tall. So that's over two and a half meters. And 10 feet tall, three meters in God's Word translation. So it really depends on what translation of the Bible you want to go with and what you personally believe. So, it, like I said, it really varies. But there's one more sentence here in your yeah. outline This mm-hmm. is that I believe you wrote. No, no, I think Wikipedia wrote that. Oh, Wikipedia wrote this. <laughs> it does. Scholars generally agree that the shorter height found in the Greek text is older and more original. Yes, that's what so I was you saying can say you can believe whatever you want, but if you're the kind of person that believes that the oldest report is the most accurate one, yeah. Goliath was only a little bit taller than I am. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it just depends. And like I said, I think we mentioned this uh, before. I just heard this clip, and I can't remember the whole episode on Radiolab, but in a trash heap, a scrap of the Old Testament was found, or the Bible, and the number of the beast was 661. Ah, boy, who knows? See, I had heard that the number of the beast was a numeric representation of Caesar's initials. Nero, yeah. Or so, Nero, right. Yeah. We've had this discussion before. We've had people write so people in people can before. talk about him in code. Okay, here's one last point to Goliath, and we can stop talking about it altogether. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but I made a note to do so because I found this interesting because we were just talking about making your tall people your leaders. So, again, from the Wikipedia entry on Goliath, in the section on Goliath and Saul, it talks about the story of David and Goliath and the purpose it says, of the story of Goliath is to show that King Saul is not fit to be king and that David is. Saul is chosen to lead the Israelites against their enemies, but when faced with Goliath, he refuses to do so. Goliath is a giant, however, and Saul is a very tall man. Saul's exact height is not given, but he was a head taller than anyone else in all Israel. And that comes from the first book of Samuel, chapter 9, verse 2 which implies he was over six feet tall, so 1.8 meters, and supposed to be the obvious challenger for Goliath, yet David is the one who eventually defeated him. And Saul's armor was no worse than uh, Goliath's. Basically, Saul just chickened out. He's, um, anyone else want to handle this? The point here, though, is that Saul is very tall, 
And so they make him the king, but it's not enough. Yeah. It's up to David of uh, regular stature. Asymmetrical and warfare. There you go. He's brave and he's got a better tool, you know, better to be at a distance. So that's the point of the story. And, and of course, uh, the little person, the underdog overcoming the giant, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. That's all in that story. So anyway, but I thought that was interesting, though, that I'd forgotten that, that Saul himself was a tall, imposing guy. Yeah. But didn't have the gumption to defend his people. So there you go. Yeah, he didn't have the best uh, character in general. <laughs> hey, you remember the first cable series you ever binged on? Yeah, actually, I do. I actually still think about it. For me, it was a show called Wise Guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was a Stephen J. Connell joint. That's I, right. I was obsessed with that show, and my mom and I, would we recorded it. Oh, you uh, <laughs> use the old VCR and That's the whole thing, saying, and, yeah. we, and we would watch multiple episodes at once. We'll talk about VCRs. <laughs> For me, it was a co-worker that gave me a grocery bag full of VHS tapes of six feet under. Yeah, that was way back in the day. <laughs> We're talking about tapes here. Yeah. Uh, and then I think the next series I really got hooked on was The Sopranos. Man, what an epic saga. Oh, yeah. The writing is just spot on. It was excellent, and it created its own world, and the cast made it so popular and bingeable. Plus, like me, and I I guess you as well, I think a lot of people are fascinated by crime dramas, especially if that crime is organized. That's why we're excited to tell you about a brand new podcast from Audioboom called Mafia, which takes us all into America's criminal underworld, exploring the lives and careers of the most powerful gangsters the world has ever seen. Through extensive research and eyewitness stories, Mafia reveals what life was really like inside the mob from the people who lived it. Every Wednesday, Mafia dives into the larger-than-life stories of mobsters and introduces us to the key figures who brought them down. In Season 1, host Fleet Cooper brings us closer than ever to the most notorious mob bosses of all time by taking us inside the lives of Sam Giancana, Dutch Schultz, Bugsy Siegel, Charles Lucky Luciano, John Gotti, and Dottie Brasco, just to name a few, discovering how they built their criminal enterprises and revealing how the mafia is connected to the assassination of JFK. What? Oh boy, time to get out our conspiracy hats. You know it, baby. Wait, are those different than our tinfoil hats? Yeah, yeah, these are just fedoras. Oh, okay. Uh, So subscribe to Mafia on Apple Podcasts and every other listening destination. Good evening, my name's Adam. And my name's Matt. And when we're not researching the paranormal... Or recording graveyard tales... We're listening to the Podfathers. Now let's get back to Scott and Forrest. Now, getting back to the article by Micah Hanks, here's another example that he points out that is in the Smithsonian's 12th Annual Report from the Bureau of Ethnology on page 115, where something else interesting has been found. Right, and this is the same annual report we read from earlier. So there's two cases in that same report. Exactly. So this is from page 115 of the report. This one's about the Native American burial mounds at Dunleith. And I'm going to actually read from a scan here that he has from the actual report. Dunleith is in uh, Illinois. Yes, Dunleith, Illinois. Mound number five, the largest of the group, was carefully examined. Two feet below the surface, near the apex, was a skeleton. Doubtless an intrusive Indian burial. Near the original surface of the ground, several feet north of the center, were the much-decayed skeletons of some six or eight persons of every size, from the infant to the adult. They were placed horizontally at full length, with the heads toward the south. A few perforated unio shells and some rude stone skinners and scrapers were found with them. Near the original surface, 
10 or 12 feet from the center on the lower side, lying at full length upon its back, was one of the largest skeletons discovered by the Bureau agents. The length is proved by actual measurement being between 7 and 8 feet. It was all clearly traceable, but crumbled to pieces immediately after removal from the hard earth in which it was encased. With these were three thin, crescent-shaped pieces of roughly hammered native copper, respectively 6, 8, and 10 inches in length, with small holes along the convex margin, a number of elongate copper beads made by rolling together thin sheets, and a shirt lance head over 11 inches long. So it was interesting to read that because you get a sense of what they actually found there, which I don't think we've really described before. What the report says when they actually unearthed all this the items that they found, and the positions that they were in. So that's a clear picture of that. But obviously, they measured it at the time, and so, yeah, you got a large skeleton sitting there. So that's another report actually obtained by the Smithsonian that is on record, solid, okay, of something very tall. Yes. Now, getting back to the words of Micah Hanks, quote, in other words, while the Smithsonian has actually acknowledged Finding such large skeletons, there may be legitimate reasons as to why no bones were ever recovered in some instances, unquote. Now, that's an important point because you ask, well, where are the samples? Well, these bones in these moist places crumbled a lot of the times, and there really wasn't anything to recover. So that's offered as a reason why there are no large collections of these really tall skeletons. Now, Colavito will tell you the reason they crumble is because they've been frozen and thawed so many times, right, which right. would also lend credence to the idea that possibly the skeletons had expanded as a result of that, and that the science of paleopathology did not exist at that time. So it's not something that they would have been aware of, like the distortions that happened to a skeleton over time. But there's other people who would debate and say, well, no matter how much freezing and thawing you're doing, you're not going to have a skeleton stretch to between seven and eight feet tall. So just like anything we ever encounter, there's two sides to everything, and you have yeah. to make your own decisions about it. But it is fascinating, and that is stuff that's documented. But getting back to reasons that the Smithsonian might not have the bones is one of the reasons is that the minute they might have tried to extract them, they just crumbled away. Right. See, nowadays, I believe they would have better means of recovery. They're aware that this is the case a lot of these times, and would go about it more carefully. But, you know, this is <laughs> this is the tools they had at the time and the knowledge they have. I mean, they certainly could interpret what they were seeing. But again, even if you pry these carefully out of the ground, are they going to survive going back to the museum a year later and being cataloged properly? And what are you going to get years from then? So I think that's a valid point. And Jason's point is also valid as far as the processes of this heating and cooling and uh, moisture expansion and all that. But again, that's an important point. You hear that come up a lot. Why are there no bone fragments? And I think that's a pretty valid reason that we're seeing in writing right here. Now, here's another instance within this article, which I found fascinating because it's another fantastic story by a name that always keeps popping up here and there when we do our research, the famed late zoologist Ivan T. Sanderson. Uh, yes, contemporary of John Keel. They were really good friends. Yeah, he's a legendary, really one of those uh, Indiana Jones characters. Yeah. Just an adventurer. Just reading his passage here in Wikipedia, you can certainly look him up. Ivan Terrence Sanderson, born January 30th, 1911, died February 19th, 1973. So there you go, into the modern era. Was a biologist and writer born in Edinburgh, Scotland, who became a naturalized citizen of the United States. 
Sanderson is remembered for his nature writing and his interest in cryptozoology and paranormal subjects. He also wrote fiction under the name Terence Roberts. So just, yeah, one of those larger-than-life, most interesting man-in-the-world characters. Yeah. So we have a letter here that Micah Hanks wrote about Ivan T. Sanderson coming across a very unusual find and maybe what he believed is mishandling, shall we say, by the Smithsonian. So Scott, why don't you read this passage for us? Sometime in the 1960s, Sanderson wrote about an odd letter he received regarding an engineer who during World War II had been stationed on the Aleutian Island of Shimya. While building an airstrip, the bulldozing of a group of hills in the area led the engineer and his crew to unearth several sedimentary layers of human remains. They noted the extraordinary length of the crania and leg bones at the site, having apparently belonged to people of gigantic proportions. The skulls were said to have measured up to 24 inches from base to crown, far greater than the length of an average human skull. Also of interest was that each was said to have been trepanned. The strange process of drilling or cutting a hole and removing a top center portion of the skull, thought by some ancient cultures to enable a variety of alleged benefits, including psychic abilities, etc. Sanderson actively began to search for more proof of this incident, and later was able to contact another member of the unit who he said confirmed the bizarre story. By all accounts, the remains were said to have been gathered by the Smithsonian Institution, but no record of where they were taken was ever issued. Sanderson seemed convinced that the Institute did indeed retrieve them, however, going so far as to ask, quote, is it that these people cannot face rewriting all the textbooks, end quote. <laughs> I wanted to make you say that because it's your favorite line. Yeah. Who cares about the textbooks? That's a really horrible reason not <laughs> to deal with, you know, a monumental historical find. If that's what's going on. Hey, you're killing trees. There's a lot of ink. No, what it is is people having to change their entire position. Yeah. But you know what? That happens. It's like the Aleutian Islands. Well, to me, that sounds like the land bridge or the coastal migration theory. Yeah. Which is people following the coastal lines, and it's an easy way to travel down the coastlines in, well, in canoes. Yeah, and that's what's amazing about Shimya. Yeah. The other thing that's fascinating about this island is where it is. It's in the Aleutians. It's way up there. It's yeah. out at the farthest, farthest end of what is, I guess, technically Alaska. It really seems closer to Russia than Cuba is to Florida. Right. I mean, it's there on the edge. So it's interesting to think of these types of people being up in that area. All right. So pretty interesting, huh? Yeah. All right. Well, getting back to now the conclusions by Micah Hanks, there's some bullet points here. One, the 1894 Bureau of Ethnology report provides us with historical documentation by agents with the Smithsonian for the discovery of large anomalous bones that appear to be human and on at least two instances. Secondly, the 1911 Sunset Cave discovery of the Lovelock red-haired giants and Ivan T. Sanderson's World War II story suggests that large skeletons that are of unusual height have been found, and the transfer of the bones from the site to a museum has been mishandled. You know, it's hard to say whether that was an accident or intentional, but it does seem to have happened. Point number three is that, so then there is some material to those that want to believe in a conspiracy which is mainstream institutions, have always been intentionally trying to cover up evidence of giants in America's ancient history. 
You know what I'm saying? So that it gives you a little foothold there. That's what he's concluding. And then point number four, in the case of the Dunleith, Illinois find, the bones crumbled once they tried to remove them. So that's why you don't have any bones. So anyway, that's what I take away is the conclusions to this article, which makes some major points about the entire argument and frame it pretty well. Wait, are those your conclusions or Micah Hanks? <laughs> a little from column A, a little from column B. Okay, gotcha, kind of, gotcha. No, that's, that's what I gathered from his article and we certainly read a lot of his writing as he pulled from it, but we also condensed it. We didn't want to read the entire thing, so it's some paraphrasing and summarization. But that's the gist of it. Again, I think it's a pretty well-defined argument, you know, mostly civil, <laughs> between somebody who is trying to view all sides of it and just take in information and present it and look at everything as best he can, and somebody who is really taking the hardline skeptical view of Nothing to see here, folks, and it's not such a big deal. All right, now, before we get to the really fun part, which is the interview with Carl Stroiken, love saying his name. And right, he's a real-life <laughs> giant, he's although a, he says he isn't, but he's seven no. feet tall, people. No, seven but what feet. he is is a really nice, decent guy, very interesting. And, fun and, to talk to. Yeah, I loved hearing him talk about his life. But before we do that, I want to reiterate an interesting point, because things get defined, even, this is all over the place, folks. What's been found? What's not? What is yellow journalism and sensationalism of the time, of the late 19th century? what's real, what exists. And there's a lot of cultural identities wrapped up in this. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it gets real serious real fast for a lot of people. No, it does, because it's part of your origin story, and it's part of your identity now, and it's part of your claim to the land that you're on. But one thing that's, I've seen this kind of bubble up as a defining point, again, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, is that there seem to be a lot of accounts that are hard to dismiss, at least, of very tall skeletons being found. Let's start off at six and a half feet, which is to me, that's pretty tall. <laughs> yeah. When I see a six and a half foot guy, I, I'm looking up and I'm impressed. Yes. Uh, that's pretty normal. Then you start to get into the seven and eight foot range. Now we're talking the end of the spectrum for believability, I think. The skeletons and the cases that we're hearing about, seven to eight feet tall, and that's pretty darn tall. For a human, if you're healthy or if you have uh, acromegaly or gigantism, that's about the end of the scale of where you can still live. However, when you push past that, the point of unbelievability, 10 feet or more, I would say, is now getting even more rare, those cases. However, one of the more interesting cases we've come across is from Castelnau in France. We are from France. Yeah, this is a pretty amazing story. We teased this a little bit from part one, and it's just the last thing we want to talk about before we uh, go to Carl's interview right here. This comes from a researcher who we've actually been in touch with several times by email now. I'm going to read you some of the stuff that he sent us with his permission. He's given it to me. His name is also Micah, but this is not Micah Hanks. This is Micah Ewers. And Micah actually did a lot of work on behalf of Hugh Newman and Jim Vieira, who wrote the book that we've referred to several times, Giants on Record, America's Hidden History, Secrets in the Mounds, and the Smithsonian Files. And they had him go out and look for a lot of material. Yeah, he uh, actually collected and scanned and snapshotted thousands of bits of information and articles. He is incredibly thorough yeah, yeah. and uh, very interesting to talk to, and he seems to be an expert on this. But one of the cases, he studied a lot of different giant cases, but one of the ones that we thought was really interesting is the giant of Castle Noe. 
which is in France. And uh, I want to read an excerpt here from a blog entry that he made on it. This was made in uh, February of 2014, so almost exactly four years ago he wrote this blog entry. The giant of Castleknow offers some of the best documentation for human giants I have seen. After locating the report, I felt compelled to find other reports of giant human skeletons in France and Spain, and I was successful. Now, the report he's referring to here, I'm actually going to take from the Wikipedia page, which he wrote, which is uh, pretty <laughs> interesting here. The expression giant of Castleknow refers to three bone fragments, a humerus, tibia, and femoral midshaft, discovered by Georges Vachier de la Pouge in 1890 in the sediment used to cover a Bronze Age burial tumulus, and then possibly dating back to the Neolithic. According to de la Pouge, the fossil bones may belong to one of the largest humans known to have existed. He estimated from the bone size that the human may have been about three and a half meters, or 11 and a half feet tall. No modern peer-reviewed study has been published about the alleged giant bone fragments. And there is a picture of these bones, which we have in our show notes, and you're going to see, that was featured along with an article about this in the New York Times. The bones were discovered by the anthropologist Georges Vacheux de la Pouge at the Bronze Age Cemetery of Castelnau-le-Lay, France, in the winter of 1890. His findings were published in the journal La Nature, volume 18, 1890, issue 888. The height of the individual was estimated at about 11 feet 6 inches, according to de la Pouge, and the bones were dated to the Neolithic period, since they were found at the very bottom of the Bronze Age burial tumulus. The journal includes a photo engraving of what was identified as the humerus, tibia, and femoral midshaft of the giant compared to a normal-sized humerus in the center. Writing in the journal La Nature, de la Pouge describes the bones in detail. Quote, I think it unnecessary to note that these bones are undeniably human, despite their enormous size. The first is the middle part of the shaft of a femur, 14 centimeters length, almost cylindrical in shape, and the circumference of the bone is 16 centimeters. The second piece is the middle and upper part of the shaft of a tibia. The circumference is 13 centimeters at the nutrient foramen. The length of fragment is 26 centimeters. The third, very singular, was regarded by good anatomists as the lower part of a humerus. The volumes of the bones were more than double the normal pieces to which they correspond. Judging by the usual intervals of anatomical points, they also involve lengths almost double. The subject would have been a likely size of three meters. The bones of the Castelnau giant were studied at the University of Montpellier and examined by M. Sabatier, professor of zoology at the University of Montpellier and M. Delage, professor of paleontology at the University of Montpellier, in addition to other anatomists. In 1892, they were carefully studied by Dr. Paul-Louis-André Kiener, professor of pathological anatomy at Montpellier School of Medicine, for which he admitted they represented, quote, a very tall race, end quote, but nevertheless found them abnormal in dimensions and apparently of morbid growth, end quotes. So that's an important point to point out. These are anomalous, not indicative of 
normally healthy people that are just huge, right? That's what I gather here. Well, what they're saying here is that these bones belong to a race of men between 10 and 15 feet in height. Now we're in crazy territory. It's getting crazy. That's what I'm saying. It's getting crazy. I want to make a point here quickly because we were going to have a section where we talked about how high can a person grow? How tall can a person be? One of the things that uh, Chris Cogswell dug up here is an article from The Guardian and it's entitled, How Tall Can a Human Grow? And there's an important point down here by a man named John Wass, who is a specialist in acromegalic gigantism at the University of Oxford. You know, that's the question. Surely there must be a limit, right, to a person's height. And he says, it would be impressive to survive for long if you grew taller than nine feet. And the reason is, first, high blood pressure in the legs caused by the sheer volume of blood in the arteries can burst blood vessels and cause varicose ulcers. An infection of just such an ulcer eventually killed Robert Wadlow. With modern antibiotics, ulcers are less of an issue now, and most people with acromegalic gigantism eventually die because of complications from heart problems. Quote, keeping the blood going around, such an enormous circulation becomes a huge strain for the heart, says Wass. Now, yeah, you're at the limit. At nine feet, you're at the limit of what normal tissues can bear for human beings anyway. Certainly, yes, elephants, no problem. Dinosaurs, sure. Human beings, not so much. Well, there you go. So the next thing that Micah Ewers wanted to do was see if he could find other examples of finds of giants this large in the areas in France. In this blog entry that he put out after the initial discovery of the bones found at Castleneau, he says, One of the leads that I have been trying to follow up on are the skeletons of up to nine giants found in the Cueva Danes near the 4,000-year-old Dolmens of Oren, located on a hill overlooking the town of Prolons in Catalonia, Spain. Spanish authors Fernando Ledesma Rubio and Miguel G. Aracil wrote about these giants found in the Pyrenees Mountains of Catalonia and other locations in Spain in their books. These giants were said to be three meters tall, or ten feet, and have correspondingly large skulls and femurs, 27 to 36 inches long. These giant skeletons from Catalonia dated to Bronze Age and Neolithic dolmen cultures from about the same era of the giant skeletal finds in southern France, i.e. the giant of Castleneau, just 175 miles to the northeast. So what's happening here is he's trying to uncover examples of other giants that are as large as the giant of Castleneau. And he's done a lot of research on this and taken a pretty deep dive. We're going to have a link to his blog page so that you can check out all of the stuff that he dug up on this. But the interesting thing is he felt that if you looked throughout the French countryside, you would find lots of other examples that you could piece together and suggest the possibility that instead of one anomalous finding, you were looking at an idea that there may have actually been a species of these huge human beings in France and in neighboring regions. In fact, listen to this discovery just three miles south of Castleneau that Evers dug up from an article in the Owen Register, November 8th, 1894. Giants of prehistoric France. In a prehistoric cemetery recently uncovered at Montpellier, France, while workmen were excavating a waterworks reservoir, human skulls were found measuring 28, 31, and 32 inches in circumference. 
The bones which were found with the skulls were also of gigantic proportions. These relics were sent to the Paris Academy, and a learned savant who lectured on the find says that they belonged to a race of men between 10 and 15 feet in height. That's from November 8th, 1894. So the skull of a normal man is about 21 inches in circumference. The skull of the Montpellier giant, 32 inches circumference. Such a giant may have had over three times the cranial capacity of a normal man, according to Micah Ewers. So what he's saying is that the close proximity of these reports indicate perhaps a tribal element of giant stature once occupied the Neolithic coast of South France. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, especially if you see some photos of this skull, which uh, it's freakishly round. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty crazy. And the thing is, he's had a hard time tracking down hard evidence on this, but some has been found. Now, we exchanged a bunch of emails, and he gave me permission to share what he sent to me about this topic, and I wanted to uh, pass it on to our listeners. This is from Micah himself. Between 2010 and 2015, I worked with Chris Leslie— Jim Vieira and Hugh Newman as their primary archivist, along with Ross Hamilton, who is considered, by the way, the father of giantology, and even L.A. Marzulli for a brief period. Most of it involved compiling a live database of newspaper reports, periodicals, and bulletins. I found something around 1,500 items by 2014. My current count is like 3,000 files. Cecilia Hall mapped 1,400 of them on Google Earth back in 2013 and 14. The Castle Knoll and French finds I located in newspaper and Google book archives are still inconclusive. I had two contacts, Maxime Atad, a chap who lives near Montpellier, I think he's a chef, and another fellow named Ryan Sequera. Both try and get info on the Castle Knoll giant via the University of Montpellier, but couldn't get any from their museum archives. Castle Knoll is one of my favorite finds because it could be one of these outlier ultra-tall human beings something nine or ten feet plus. It could also be another Cardiff giant, so he's implying, you know, maybe this is some kind of hoax. However, the find was studied by one pathologist and several anatomists in 1890 and 92, and there were other bizarre skeletal finds reported in the press in the area. It hasn't really been debunked yet in about nine years, but my hunch is it was a person, perhaps who had gigantism. No medicine back in the Neolithic age and disorders like this can be genetically transmitted via mutation. This is according to the New England Journal of Medicine from the Charles Byrne study. But it's darn hard to say at this point. In general, the topic of giantology has reached epic levels of sensationalism in recent four or five years, kind of splintering off into an entertainment wing subgenre with so many different books being published and pet theories out there. Nephilim, Nephites, Lost Tribes of Israel, Lost Vikings, Ancient Alien, and Sasquatch Theories. It has almost gotten a wee tad silly. We did confirm the State Museum in Carson City has a size 15 equivalent men's sandal from the Lovelock Cave. That's a whole other find that we didn't even get into because we are trying to finish this series in three episodes and not 20. <laughs> yeah. But the large bulk of reports are still lacking primary data, and there were indeed the odd hoax like the aforementioned Cardiff Giant, the Fiji Mermaids, and the San Diego Mummy, which is what the article was that our quote was from at the beginning of the show tonight, and also one of the first pictures we tweeted. That was a known hoax when we mm -hmm. were doing social media for when we started this series. All that stuff was prevalent in the Victorian Dime Museum age, and almost all reports of 12 and 15 foot and up giants are mastodonic or misidentified sloths or megafauna in nature. 
There is good archaeological evidence for some seven to seven and a half foot chieftains in the Ohio Valley, like 20 plus some Smithsonian records from 1880s to the 1890s by their own ethnologists and parroted in the New York Times reports of the days. And then the 1950s through 60s digs of university-trained archaeologist William S. Webb and Dr. Dragu, among others, find seven-foot Adena men at Dover and Cresop Mounds, not exactly the P.T. Barnums of the day. This would back up some of the more matter-of-fact town and county reports of big Indian skeletal finds. In many instances, femurs were measured, so it wasn't all just a matter of skeletons lengthening in the grave. In any case, the subject of giants is a wild ride through the mythic portrayals of imagination, enhanced by the internet. I think there are intense anthropological mysteries here, buried beneath all the layers of sensation, and we do have real amazing discoveries in the human evolution. The Denisovinians, Heidelbergensis of robust physiology, possibly seven-footers, and the wee folk, like the three-foot Indonesian hobbits, discovered 14 years ago in Indonesia. There is a lot of variability among the human form. So, Jim Vieira and Hugh Newman were in France last year trying to follow up leads on Castelnau and Montpellier. I never got the full scoop from Jim on what the jury is on his wing of research. I'd like to emphasize, though, that I've slightly changed my stance on the quest to prove the existence of giants in North America. There is enough archaeological data, digs and reports, measurements of skeletons, femurs, etc. in the literature that in my view to demonstrate lineages of hereditary shamans and chieftains of unusual stature, sometimes seven to eight feet tall or so, it is unnecessary to exhume present mounds containing indigenous persons. So many mounds were desecrated in the Ohio Valley alone between the 1850s and 1970s, some estimates higher than 90% in some areas. There is a huge amount of literature on the topic, a lot of it in hard-to-access expensive books in limited print. That's one reason I feel why most of our data we located in archives is pre-1920s because common copyright has expired and we can search these things for free online. As more papers and records are digitized to the net, probably a lot more information will become available to the public and readily viewable so we can make sense of many of these old reports. But with laws like NAGPRA in effect, Not only tall skeletons, but all native remains are now not viewable in public. As I said earlier, I was able to confirm there was a size 15 sandal that my friend was able to photograph on a previous visit, and Dr. Pat Barker at the State Museum confirmed its size and length, nearly 13 inches, along with size 11 and 12 sandals at Lovelock Cave, suggesting some tall folks from the Lovelock culture. I even located old press clippings from the Nevada State Journal I forwarded to Dr. Barker, which showed that some 15-inch sandals were unearthed in the cave, but the Historical Society and State Museum had no record of them that he could find. Giants over 8 or perhaps 9 feet may exist if some of these femur reports of 26, 28, and 29 inches are true, but I doubt very much people much over 9 or 10 feet existed or any in any appreciable numbers outside of extremely unusual occurrences. So, Micah Evers, I would just like to thank you for sending in all that information. I think it's really fascinating. You've done a lot of research on it. It's good to get your perspective on it. But that gives you an overview on his opinion of these finds in Castelnau in France, which people are still looking into. I think there's enough there to keep looking. Yeah, absolutely. Because, again, just the picture of that skull. Maybe they were able to fake bone, or that's a fake itself. It's still being studied. But again, that's into the realm of the unbelievable. We're near the end of February already. How's your business doing so far? 
Tired of that bad hire that's already underperforming? It might be someone you hired that's high up in your organization, or even in an executive position, like a business partner who just ain't cutting the mustard, who's taking half your profits, but is underperforming and dragging down your operation. Hey, I'm sitting right here. I'm not talking about you, oh. as far as you know. I'm, yeah. I'm talking about all those people that get hired in any size business just because you needed someone to fill a position fast, but you didn't get a wide range of responses and you didn't have time to fully vet them. Maybe they were a friend of a friend or they looked good on paper, but now you realize... They're just not working out. Hey, you can't fire me. I quit. Hey, you can't say that either because that's my line. <laughs> that's true. But there's another good point. Maybe your new hire realizes they're not a good fit for your company and they up and quit unexpectedly. And now you got to start the whole hiring process over again. You and your business don't have time for that. Well, I guess we're stuck with each other. Tell me about it. <laughs> but if you need to fill a new position fast or start looking for a replacement, you now have the perfect tool for the job, ZipRecruiter, because ZipRecruiter is a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply for your job. And these invitations really have revolutionized how you find your next hire, and the stats prove it. Because 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you'll find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, Astonishing Legends listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I'm Tracy Forbes Bosley, and when I'm not out rescuing dogs, cats, or the occasional cryptid, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. Speaking of unbelievable, it's unbelievable to me that when we contacted television and movie giant Carl Stryken, that he agreed to do an interview with us. So we decided that there was no better way to wrap up this series than with an interview with an actual living giant who's famous for playing giants on both the big and small screen. We're very excited to welcome Dutch actor Carl Stryken to our show tonight. He is well-known in TV and film for his performances in a slew of amazing projects, from Twin Peaks to The Addams Family to Star Trek The Next Generation and Men in Black. He's been acting since the 70s, and one of your first projects, well, maybe it's not your first project, but you appeared in the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band movie? Uh, that's correct, yeah. Yes. I think before that, um, I, I went to the American Film Institute for a year, and I think I uh, was in a few of those. Oh, uh, sure. The student films? No, there was one that somebody who was at the AFI, he he did a, his own full-length movie. I forget what it was. Oh, okay. But anyhow, yeah. So... Yeah, you can say that Sergeant Pepper's was the first one, yeah. <laughs> so you've obviously, yeah. you've been at it for quite some time. I mean, had you always wanted to get into acting and directing? Was that something that was something you always wanted to do? Or um, I wanted to do stuff behind the camera. And in the 70s, I hooked up with a, uh, a film director, also originally from Holland, but he has lived here most of his life. And um, we started a a small production company. We even had our own soundstage for a while in uh, East Hollywood. 
And while we were working on a on one of our own projects called Population One, which was a musical feature starring a lot of the local punk uh, musicians, mm-hmm. somebody who uh, Major Major. Mabel Mabel Collins, yeah. Okay. Uh, she was the personal assistant to the director of um, Sergeant Pepper, and um, she kind of jumped out of her car while I was walking on Hollywood Boulevard, and she said, "Oh, we need you for our movie." Wow. I just went to meet the director, and that was it. So, was it safe to walk down Hollywood Boulevard back then? <laughs> <laughs> Just as safe as it is now, okay. or unsafe, whatever you know. I, especially in those days, I wasn't afraid as much. I was a lot stronger than I am now. But um, sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> your business partner at the time—that would be uh, Renee Dalder. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. right. Yeah, yeah. And did you meet him in Amsterdam when you were a student there, or? Well, I I went to the film school in Amsterdam, and so did he. But he was a a few years ahead of me oh, okay. and he, he had already moved to the US and uh, so I, I met him very briefly when he happens to be in Amsterdam for a few uh, weeks and then I contacted him again when I uh, had kind of settled in California. I see and in addition to acting and also working behind the camera I understand when you were younger anyway, according to Wikipedia, you actually composed several waltzes. You were a composer as well? Uh, well, composer, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, well, actually, I have a piece of music in uh, Witches of Eastwick, uh, the, the, oh, really? the, end, the title sequence at the end, uh, when I sit down behind this little baby piano. That's my own music. So, oh, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, I'm, 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 a, I'm a registered composer. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you're, you're a real renaissance man, it sounds like. You have uh, lots of skills. Okay. Let me ask you this. With regard to you know, your, your large stature and that kind of thing, how do you feel about the word giant and, and personally being labeled as a giant? What does that mean to you? Do you find that offensive or, or are you okay with it? How has that been for you growing up and being a performer? Well, I, I don't think I'm quite there yet. As, as uh, I mean, I, I don't think I, I deserve for, to be called a giant. Uh, <laughs> there, there are a lot of people who are taller than I am. Sure. Uh, a few years ago, I was visiting this uh, professor in uh, Rotterdam who wanted my blood because he was doing some research. And um, he, he was kind of disappointed because he had a lot of patients who were a lot taller than I was, so <laughs> I was a bit of a letdown to him. <laughs> he, he was crestfallen when he saw that you were only seven feet tall, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, actually, I, 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 he should have known, or he, he knew how tall I was, but right. we, we walked to uh, the statue of the giant of Rotterdam, and he had me stand next to him, uh-huh. and it was kind of a joke. He was so much taller than I was. And he, he lived, uh, I think he died in the 50s or so. So okay. that was not that long ago. Yeah. Sure. It says online in terms of any of the research that we did on you that you owe your height to the condition of acromegaly. Is that something that you actually suffer from or have been diagnosed with? Yeah. Although all the men on my mother's side of the family 
uh, like my grandfather on my mother's side was six uh, nine, oh my and a lot of uncles from that part of the family were way over six feet. So I, I would probably have, even without the acromegaly, I would probably have been very close to seven feet, maybe six ten or so. But made a little bit of difference. Yeah. When you became aware that you had that, did you take any steps to deal with it, or is it something that you just live with? No, no. You you do have to deal with it, uh, and it's very often misdiagnosed. So I, I was lucky. My my father was a, a you know throat specialist. So uh, when I was fifteen, he kind of suspected that I had acromegaly, so I was immediately sent to all kinds of specialists. And uh, by the time I was 18, they wanted to do all kinds of, they wanted to radiate and stuff like that. And my dad, again, because he was a doctor, he knew how often things went wrong, right. especially in those days. Sure. So he said, let's just wait and see. <laughs> right. Well, it's good to have somebody like that around, especially, like you said, back then. Yeah, because I, I um, in the 80s, I uh, was on a trial for some medication that was supposed to slow down uh, the output of growth hormone. Yes. So I met a lot of people who had acromegaly, and most of them, in, at least in the 80s, I don't know if it's any better now, but in the 80s, it took about eight to nine years between onset and diagnosis. So people were misdiagnosed for years and years and years before somebody finally said, oh, it must be acromegaly. So in your case, with your height, you come from a particularly tall family anyway, so you would... For you, you feel like a smaller percentage of your height is probably due to acromegaly rather than genetics. Yeah, it, I, I did have a, a pituitary adenoma probably when I was uh, already when I was 13 or 14. When the adenoma, uh, which is called a benign tumor, uh-huh. I don't know why it's called benign, but anyhow, that's what, what, what they call it. Um, after you are already grown, so after you're 21st or so, then it doesn't add any to your length, uh, but it does start to deform uh, your hands and your feet and your skull and things like that. At those younger ages, were you exceptionally tall when you were 15? Like when your dad thought that maybe something was going on, how tall were you back then? I was already two meters, uh, so that's, what is it, six, well, you have to do the calculation I'll do the math, yeah. Uh, (laughs) I can't do it on the fly, but we'll do it later. Uh, well, I, I'm sitting behind my computer, so yeah. uh, I was already two meters when I was uh, 14. Yeah, so I, I was uh, I was 78.7 inches. Okay. So I've lived here for since 74, but I still think that this imperial system that the U.S. <laughs> and Nigeria, as the only two countries in the world, still hang on to, is just a Total joke, but anyhow. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, right. So uh, that looks like it's about six and a half feet. So that would be, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm six two. So, and I'm taller than most of my friends, but not exceptionally. But uh, so you were six and a half feet when you were in your early teens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. By the time I was 18 in, in Holland in those days, so in the, what is it, the 60s, late 60s, you still had to 
be in the army for two years. Uh-huh. So I remember going to this huge hall with thousands of people who were all 18. And uh, you had to go up a little podium and that's where they would measure you. And so I go to the little podium and all these thousands of guys started laughing and laughing. And I got to go home and they had to stay for two years. So <laughs> so you didn't mind, huh? <laughs> I didn't mind. No, it was sweet revenge. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that brings me to another question, really. I mean, do you, have you ever felt ostracized or made fun of or anything like that? Or how, how do you feel about being so different from most of the people you're around? Well, I, ironically, when I was uh, 15, 16, Holland wasn't that tall yet. Now it's the tallest nation in the world, I think. Yeah. But in those days, it was still exceptional. And it was pretty tough uh, just walking around in a, in a city. People would yell at you and, and all these stupid jokes. And I remember when I was 16, I, I went to, uh, I built my own mopeds from, I think, four different brands. Oh, that's it cool. Was a, in, in retrospect, it was a very dangerous machine, but anyhow, <laughs> and I, I decided to ride it to uh, England and then go on to Ireland. And uh, I remember being in in London, and w- what an absolute relief it was to just walk around and nobody would say anything, nobody would even look at you, you know, right. because the British are very reserved and, and they don't do that, you know, sure, it's just sure. not done to make fun of somebody. So, uh, yeah, I, I do remember that as kind of a relief. Backing up a second, you took a homemade moped from one country to another? <laughs> yeah, you had to take a boat from uh, uh, somewhere in Belgium, no, in, Rot- uh, in Rotterdam, you had to take a boat to England and yeah. then I rode it across England and then you have to take another boat from uh, the west side of England to Ireland, yeah. Why yeah, did you yeah. build your own moped? Because my, my parents didn't want to pay for one and, uh-huh. and uh, so I thought, okay, I'll put it together myself. But in, in retrospect, I, I did some things that could have killed me uh, using the wrong steel oh, here sure. and there. And, yeah. and so, it, it, yeah, it was a dangerous machine. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I had a moped myself in college, and it was made by one company, and it was dangerous anyway. <laughs> it was a Yamaha. It was fast, though. It was, it was very fast. And in high school, uh, I was the guy to go to um, have your moped souped up. Oh. <laughs> so about the same time that I had my own moped, I was... Uh, helping kids speeding up theirs. So, so you have a moped hot rod shop, I guess. <laughs> right, right. Do you, have, uh, do you have a picture of the one you built? No. Oh, no I, I would love to see that. I'm mechanically inclined, so I'm uh, always fascinated with that kind of stuff. Um, I guess the other things I wanted to ask you, you know, again, in terms of, of being as tall as you are and constantly being cast as a giant and that sort of thing. Do you have any specific kind of opinion about uh, the legends and lore associated with uh, giants of history like Goliath and uh, Gilgamesh, for example? Or or is it something that you just haven't given a lot of thought to? I mean, obviously, it's, it means something in, in the public uh, subconscious. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like sometimes you have good uh, giants, sometimes you have bad giants. Yeah. It's, it's not that 
I remember that in, in, in Curacao, where I grew up in the, in the Caribbean, according to the Spanish, the natives that they found there, and they immediately killed them all off, but uh, they, they were supposed to have been giants. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you were, kind of, I guess, having to watch your back a little bit there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are there any legends of... Uh, Dutch giants besides the one that you mentioned, or is there any kind of, because what's, here's what's interesting to me talking to you now is acromegaly aside, you come from an exceptionally tall family. And in a way that makes you more of a, a giant by nature than, than necessarily by a condition. And, and it sounds to me like you, all these tall members of your family, and that may go back for long periods of time. Um, it was your grandfather that you say he was very tall your, or your great grandfather? Yeah. No, my grandfather. Your yeah. grandfather. Yeah. And do you know of other uh, yeah. very tall members of, on your paternal side going before him? Uh, I don't know going before him, but I, I know that uh, a lot of his cousins of his, mm-hmm. so they were in the family and they were, all, uh, they were all way over six feet. And all Dutch? Yeah, yeah. That part of the family came from Rotterdam mm-hmm. and... Um, the family name was Dutil, I think. So it was my grandfather's mother who was a Dutil, I think. So yeah, and there, there were a lot of tall men there. Oh, so. that's, that's interesting. My co-host would wanted me to ask you if you felt that giants were prevalent in Dutch folklore. Well, the, m- most of the folklore is kind of mixed in with Germany. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not very clear what comes from where. Sure. I, I do remember that uh, Antwerp, which is technically Belgium, but history it has been part of Holland. So whatever you can, let, let's just add it to Holland for for this purpose. Sure. The, the name Antwerp comes from throwing a hand. Mm-hmm. So ant, uh, hunt werpen, werpen is throw and hunt is hand. Okay. And supposedly there was a giant who was uh, bugging people and finally cu- somebody cut off his hand and tossed it in the sea. And that's when they started their, their harbor uh, city, I guess. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, these stories are not so far turning out so well for the Giants, it sounds like. <laughs> no, 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 no. Personally, do you have any interest in the paranormal or unusual or strange things like that? I, I guess I, I, I can't think of something right off the bat, but yeah, there are a lot of, you could call paranormal things that I find intriguing, yeah, but that's about it, yeah. I mean, you've obviously worked with a lot of really talented people across the course of your career, <sighs> from Angelica Houston to David Lynch and uh, Renee Dalder, who you just mentioned. Are there any of those folks that you are particularly fond of working with? Uh, not to get anybody in trouble, by the way, but just <laughs> do you have a favorite um, projects that you like, that you've enjoyed working on? Well, I, I, I really like to working on Twin Peaks and, and meeting David Lynch and, and getting to experience uh, a few hours uh, on the set with David Lynch here and there. Sure. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was special. <laughs> <laughs> what's, it, what's it like yeah. working with him? Well, I don't know if you've ever seen him give an interview. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's about how it is on the set. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you a few questions about Twin Peaks. We do have some listeners who knew we were going to be talking to you, and they were interested, as well as one of our researchers who is an obsessive 
fan of the show. You know, I'm always curious with, uh, you know, my wife works in TV, so I know as being a performer, you're not always privy to all the mechanics of the script. But I mean, with respect to Twin Peaks, both the first season, but then also the new version, when you were on the set and you were the fireman and you had your lines and you were doing your parts, did you know what was going on or do you just kind of show up with your sides and do what he says or or, or (laughs) is the big picture uh, more? (laughs) Uh, Well, this whole thing about being so secretive about scripts and stuff, that's Uh, something from the last few years, eight, ten years or so. Okay. But before that, I would always get a complete script. Uh, Otherwise, you don't know what's going on you know right. it's ridiculous right and in the case of twin peaks no i had no idea and that's david lynch you know so that's special yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, so, even if you know the whole script you still don't know what's going on so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess that's the question you know and it's funny because marie had asked she's got this whole complicated question she sent in and i was just like oh okay so, uh, uh the giant or is he's now known the fireman as twin peaks force for good in the white lodge and she wants to know how did you approach this role what was your mindset and did you draw on any other roles or character for it i i just saw it as a continuation of uh the first uh, yes. series sure. or, or the, the what uh, 20 years ago or no 30 years ago eh? 25. well a long time ago yeah <laughs> yeah and then i just that was my own interpretation but i thought oh this is something like a helping entity from another plane yes. uh maybe a psychiatrist from outer space something like that you know and uh, the, the only sense i got was that I was some force for the good just from having my three pages of sides. <laughs> and otherwise, I had no idea. You yeah. didn't know what that was going on in the big picture. No, but I, I, I was so ecstatic that I ended up mainly in, in episode eight, uh-huh. which is just the wildest piece of uh, film that has ever been shown on <laughs> TV. It is truly amazing, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that that was absolutely fantastic. It was great. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you were on a green screen for a good part of that, but with the finished product and on the stage there, the large bell object, do you have any knowledge of what that is or what that was represented? Um well, I I guess I was kind of a a medium of some sort that was instrumental or was part of the scheme to counteract the release of Bob, right? Yes, sure. Uh, We knew that we were watching a golden globe and stuff like that, so Uh um, we knew that much, yeah. Have you ever heard heard of an object called the Nazi bell? Uh, No, no, no. It's a legendary item that we actually did a series on uh, five months ago, maybe, about uh-huh. some weapon, super weapon thing that the Nazis supposedly developed and disappeared after the war that was supposed to maybe bend space and time and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of feel like maybe Lynch was modeling that thing on the stage after that, because if you had possession of it, it would allow you to do what you were doing with the uh, golden orb, et cetera. So, so I was curious if, if he had said anything to you about it or if you had any... No, I, I, I don't think... Uh... That's just my thoughts. I, yeah. I have no idea how he looks at it. Yeah. But I, I get the impression that he never consciously 
takes something from anywhere. So oh, okay. nothing ever is a reference to something. Oh, that's interesting. Um, because to him, it's whatever pops up in his head, and and uh, when he writes it down, still makes some sense in some way, uh, and that's what stories are about for him. Sure. So I I don't think. It it makes much sense to look for references to real things in in as as least as, as far as David Lynch's inputs uh, in to Twin Peaks is concerned. Yes, and and now that you say that, that seems uh, painfully obvious. Actually, <laughs> so. his co-writer, what, what's his name? Uh, um, Mark Frost. Yeah, Mark Frost. He is much more methodical. So okay. uh, I, I'm sure that whatever he has contributed does refer back to uh, well and you can see it in the books that he writes related to twin peaks just tons of references to real uh stuff right there's a mixture maybe depending on how much he's doing structurally in terms of the scripts and yeah yeah yeah. another question from um marie your number one fan in our organization uh being a few words between the the giant and the fireman, they still have some of the most iconic lines in the Twin Peaks series. She wants to know if you get any input in the dialogue and what the character says. And then she also is curious, what's the line you hear most from the fans when you go to these cons and people come up and what do you hear back the most? <laughs> well, up until now, it was, uh, it's happening again, right? Of course. And uh, and there's, I think there's a Norwegian rock band or pop band that uh, used my uh, a loop of my voice saying it's happening again <laughs> and so it's that's yeah that's become public domain so to speak uh, yeah yes right <laughs> by nature yeah are you allowed to improvise the dialogue at all or do you do any additional or is it just you show up and you do what's on the page there and and that's what they want uh i i think especially for my part it was no it, it was pretty much expected that i would say what had been written Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if other people just by the nature of their part had much more freedom in in uh, what they were doing or saying sure sure has the success of the new series has that brought you uh more opportunities lately than than you were having before that resurgence with it I, I don't think so, no. I, I just hope that there's going to be another one uh, with or without me in it. But uh, just uh, I would love to see a continuation of it. At this stage in your in your work, what is the thing that you desire the most? Is it is it to produce or direct or is it just your photography or what are you kind of setting out to do these days? Um, I'm forever behind with things that need to be done. And I, I have a ton of things that I have to update because they were all done in in flash and <sighs> because of all its perpetual security risks uh, is now phased out right sure, so yeah. I, I have to redo a lot of stuff and and then I have a, an old project that I still want to uh, do some kind of a video uh, make into some kind of a video I, I have some footage that I've never used yet. Uh And that's about um, how we are basically still hunter-gatherers and how, uh, thanks to electronics and computers and automation and all that stuff, we are kind of 
reverting back to that. Well, and and what are the consequences of that and and things like that. So uh, yeah, that's been a long time project that uh, due to circumstances I haven't been able to work on recently or in the last many years. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I still I still hope to get that finished. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I would be interested to see it because it's a it's a valid point as I sit here behind my computer. <laughs> interviewing you <laughs> well, for, it's, for and it, and it's, also, it's also about there's all this stuff that gets processed by our brain that we're not aware of right sure. um, and we, we do a lot of stuff in daily life even speaking uh, as we speak right we have a fake idea of what we're going to say but we have very little control over how it's comes out of her mouth, so to speak. Sure. And that, that's all kind of uh, subconscious, how, how a sentence is constructed and things like that when you're speaking. Chewing, uh, just yeah. the movements that your tongue makes to deposit it between your teeth without biting on your tongue, right? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you can do that while you're doing other stuff. And, and it's very complex when you think of it. Yeah. Um, all that stuff happens without us being aware of it. But the problem is that the world we are creating caters only to what we are aware of. So it's kind of a sensory deprivation that we are building for ourselves. And oh. that, I think, is a huge issue that's not being addressed. Carl, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your taking the time to uh, talk to us. Just super right. grateful. Thank you very, very much. And um, all right. I wish you all the best and um, good fortune in uh, many more Twin Peaks episodes. All right. Okay. Yeah. You're welcome. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. I still don't know what happened in Twin Peaks. <laughs> I don't think he does either. <laughs> that's, the, that's the point. I don't think anyone does. It's language of the subconscious and the unconscious. You know, he is a fascinating guy, though. I really enjoyed talking to him. He's a true Renaissance man. He's, he's a, a true com- artist composer. at heart. Yeah, yeah, he's an artist. He's well-traveled. He's into photography. He just seems like such an interesting guy. And, you know, doesn't even consider himself a giant at seven feet tall. Well, no, that's what's interesting is that, like he said, in his home country now, never used to be the case, but now within a couple of generations or so, there's other people that are pretty close to being as tall as he is. Yeah. It's not so unusual. Yeah. And the other thing that I thought was really fascinating that for me was a poignant moment is that even though he had suffered from acromegaly, his family was tall. He was going to be tall. Yeah. It's hard to even say if his height is due to that. You know, there's other things going on that he can attribute to acromegaly, but he comes from a tall family. See, now you're getting back to the idea of the impossibility of the quote-unquote race of giants or race of tall people or even tribe of tall Native Americans or tall peoples in certain areas. Europe now we've seen and uh, Spain, France, the Americas, one thing that I think we mentioned early on in part one is that there are legends and cases of giants from all over the world. The bottom line is that tall people around the world are exalted. (laughs) Exactly. They always have been. And to give you a good case in point, if you can't wrap your head around what, uh, you know, Native American tribes and tribal leaders look like at the time or that kind of size relationship, 
again, think back to the Middle Ages in Europe and especially England. And I mentioned this earlier, so I had a little uh, piece of info here. Again, this is, I, I believe, from Wikipedia and the tallest monarchs of Europe. Just listen to some of these folks. Edward I of England, six foot two, again, at a time when most men of average nutrition were five feet to about five and a half feet. Right. Didn't really approach six feet. That was pretty rare. As I said earlier, William Wallace of Braveheart fame, six foot five. Yeah. Pretty big. Richard I of England, six foot five. Edward IV of England, six four. Henry VIII, everybody's favorite, six foot two. So these My are, height. Yeah, exactly. But here's a little uh, excerpt from that. Uh, the tallest measured British monarch was Edward IV, whose skeleton measures six foot four and a half inches or 1.94 meters. Records indicate that when fully clad in armor, he would have been about six foot seven, two meters or so, an exceptional height for any man in the 15th century. Yeah. Jeez, I mean, he's imposing. Six foot seven, that's huge. Yeah. You know, it's big now. Both Edward Longshanks, of course, that was the, the enemy, the hammer of the Scots, the enemy of William Wallace, and Richard the Lionheart were also considered unusually tall for the medieval period. Although contrary to popular belief, Longshanks was not called that due to the length of his legs, but his arms. They were over a yard long, 91 centimeters, though there is no evidence to suggest they were particularly disproportionate to the rest of his body. Just long-limbed. And now for the ladies, the tallest queen was Mary, Queen of Scots, who was around six feet tall, which was exceptionally tall for a woman of this time. Her Stuart descendants, Mary II and Anne, were both of comparable height. So tall people breed tall children. Yeah. And that's usually how the lineage goes. The chief has kids. Those take over. Same thing for our king. So, yeah, you can see that being passed down, that trait. So what you're saying is I'm definitely descended from royalty. No, why aren't you a king? That's <laughs> I am a king. No. I got and a tattoo. Own, and, no, that's true. You do. <laughs> you're a king in your own household. But, yeah. Uh, yeah it's uh, a very pick. small kingdom. <laughs> All right. Well, we're getting near the end of the show here. There's a few more kind of... A little bit of the fringier things we got. We cannot oh. talk about giants without talking about this stuff, I think. Well, here's the thing. And when Scott says fringe, we see this as a big spectrum. Whenever we talk about any subject, really, you have people on both camps. You have people in the middle. We try and navigate the waters between the two, being respectful. You know, and we'll have a, we'll have a, a, a wink and a smile at some of the more outrageous kind of things. But it is all part of the discussion. And I think you do a disservice to the concept of these ideas and maybe the history and the legend and also the fun by skipping over things because you think they're too silly or, or that's ridiculous. Yeah. Why waste your time even talking about it? It's a sliding scale. Right. Some people think X is silly. Other people think Y is silly. You know, the earth is flat. The earth is round. If the Death Star is, is round, how come when they're in the canyon, you yeah. can't see the curve? So, really? you know. Oh, you went on the blogs. I was on Reddit a minute ago and somebody posted a picture. I can't. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, the idea, though, is that... The reason we got into this business in the first place is because we love talking about the stuff that was more fantastical and crazy. That's right. While also considering the science behind it and, and what's really going on and trying to get an answer. But it's a little less fun and I think a little less interesting if you don't consider the entire spectrum. So as you've heard in part one and part two, we've taken the road from the skeptical side of, yes, things have been found, bones have been found, they've been very tall, 
but nothing too unusual or that out of the ordinary. And there's no conspiracy going on. It's just it's part of decay and and the bones being buried in moist dirt for a long time. And there's no bones left. There's no conspiracy going on on a national or global level. Well, that is the one side of the argument. On the other side are people who do believe that there is some kind of cover-up. or at Huge cover-up. Or at least, at the very least, a uh, casual dismissal of anything that's anomalous. And they believe that giants, and we're talking now into the more fantastical heights of 10 feet, 14 feet, maybe 20 feet, maybe beyond that, having existed throughout the legendary history of this planet and maybe tiny bits of evidence have been found and discarded or ignored or shelved away in some kind of, you know, it's, it's all go, it all goes to that giant warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones. Yeah. <laughs> next to the, right next to the ark. Yeah. And, and so there's a place where this, this is happening. And the idea though, is that they don't want you to know they, the authorities, academia, the government's, of the world don't want you to know these things because it, it really upsets the uh, balance of things, the order. It sounds a lot like yeah. uh, UFOs. I think it's similar to that kind of their positioning on why things are being covered up because we need to be kept in order. Things have to be rational so we don't really question stuff. And, well, and then and there's the also, as, as we've already said in, in tonight's show, there's also the cultural identity thing and the idea of these uh, large beings or races of large beings that are somehow superior to the rest of us who are all normal sized and all the stuff that goes along with that. So one person that is at the forefront, at least on the internet and in these discussion circles and in, and in literature, he's written books, is a guy named Stephen Quayle. Uh, Steve Quayle, and he has a website called Genesis Six Giants. We've mentioned this, I think, in part this one. This is a fun as well. website. It is a lot of fun, but he takes this very seriously. Yes. And he believes that uh, there is a truth about giant beings, uh, humanoids at least, that is not being looked at seriously, that there is evidence for throughout history. It's been, it's been shoved aside, and that we are being kept from the truth. And the truth is that there are these larger than rational beings. And so Steve Quayle's point of view ties in with these other researchers and writers, folks like we mentioned earlier, Chris Leslie, Jim Vieira, Hugh Newman, and Ross Hamilton, and L.A. Marzulli, who we're going to talk about uh, shortly. But those are also folks that... Micah Ewers had worked with a little bit before. Off and on. He's worked with a bunch of those guys, yeah. Right. So that is kind of that camp. They all turn to him for research. And I can tell you why. He's a a serious researcher. He is extremely buttoned up and uh, very data-oriented and very objective, although it's just something that fascinates him. Now, where they're coming from is that there are really anomalous things hidden in the dirt of the earth and maybe still alive and maybe coming back to right. torment humans again. So I got to say, there is a religious angle with some of these authors and researchers. That is part of the, I guess, legendary angle on on giants and contemporary legendary angle. And that's where some of these more fun factoids come into play. Now, I'm going to read this little paragraph from Steve Quayle's uh, website here that just kind of gives a background on his experience and his point of view. And uh, this is under the section, The Truth About Giants. I have invested over 30 years researching the vast history of giants. It has, for the most part, been kept from the public. Proof of giants' existence, their skeletal remains, 
has been quickly secreted away in obscure museums when not destroyed. Additionally, time has cloaked and sugar-coated these creatures' true perverse nature, the majority too vile, too demonic for bedtime stories. However, history is replete with their tales of unimaginable cruelty, sexual perversity, cannibalism, and pagan rituals. This is only the beginning. Some things are best forgotten. Or are they? Uh, I know that sounds very dramatic. He knows how to put some drama. <laughs> he to, I mean, hey, a, I love it. Which, yeah. It's what we do. Uh, <laughs> right. So that's kind of, you know, again, you you can kind of roll your eyes at that or, or enjoy it for what it is, or maybe even consider it seriously if you're of that mind. But that's kind of where this other end of the argument is coming from. I just want to point that out, is they believe that uh, there's something more to this than the occasional person with gigantism or acromegaly, that there is a, geez, I don't know, I guess a spiritual aspect to these giants that roam the earth. Well, and one of the things that Carl said that I always come back to when I think about his interview and his particular height he said, yeah, sure, I have lived with and dealt with acromegaly, but I would have been pretty close to this tall anyway. Yeah, There's people yeah. out there. But on the other hand, one of the observations that I'll make about the artwork and the photos and all the stuff that you see on Quail's site, and I know this is a broad generalization and mm-hmm. it'll probably get me in trouble, but even with the archaeological finds, the bulk of it seems to suggest anomalies to me, not entire species. You're not seeing that in the artwork. You're not seeing it in the old photos of the, you know, the super tall guy in Mongolia or whatever. What you're seeing right. is the guy who is an anomaly standing with all the other people who are of average height for their time and race. Yeah. And so even these sites that are saying, well, there were all these giants everywhere. And aside from the biblical story that you started this series out with about we were grasshoppers, that was a whole... Yeah. The 12 spies. Yeah, the 12 spies. That was a whole valley of giants, right? Uh, Well, here's... That's a yes or no question. (laughs) I wasn't there. No, but But, I mean, the way it's told. Well, look, there's... It's it's, not just one dude. It's It's not not like Goliath. Here comes Goliath. No, no, but and it's not just a yes or no question here, because again, that gets very complicated. From the point of view of the biblical non-literalist, even the Bible scholars... They weren't actual giants. They might have been very tall people that scared 10 of the 12 spies that went out. And also the point of that story, though, to reiterate, was that, yes, they may have been tall, but more it was uh, fear and not trusting the word of the Lord, which is why they, you know, God said, well, fine, if you don't like this land, which I promised to you and I said I would give to you, you can keep looking for another 40 years with all that. So it depends on your point of view, again, biblically and with legend, what your view of of what's possible. Is it just all six to seven feet tall people? And again, going back to Native Americans, it seems that was the case, at least in a few tribes, which we're finding evidence of. And so that seems a little unusual now, because now we're talking about not, not a race of people, but certainly whole tribes of very, very tall people. But if you go back and you look at antiquity, and Steve Quayle has some great bullet points here that are kind of fun, which I want to read here. This is what these guys are talking about. This is this is the stuff of legend here. The first one, present-day modern man averages about six feet tall, plus or minus several inches or more. So that's where we're at now. So then the rest of these are just instances of where he has found or come across what he thinks is at least a find, a documentation of something really abnormal 
and really anomalous. The next one here is 15-foot human skeleton found in southeast Turkey in late 1950s in the Euphrates Valley during road construction. Many tombs containing giants were uncovered there. This pertains to the picture of the giant human femur and myself above. So if you go to the webpage, you'll see that. Maximus Thrax Caesar of Rome, 235 to 238 AD, was an 8-foot-6 skeleton. Goliath was about nine feet, plus or minus a few inches. Well, that depends on if you're well, that's the what Dead I'm Sea sa- Scrolls, that's six. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah. A lot of these things are open to interpretation. And obviously, Steve here is leaning towards the, the larger end. We call that confirmation bias. Certainly, yeah. That's these guys' viewpoint. These things are being covered up because they are so anomalous that they cannot be explained, and it, it just rocks our present-day thinking. So if you read his books... That's going to be the line. And if that thing kind of upsets you, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't even go there. But if it interests you, uh, check them out, because again, that is fun and fantastical and just interesting to, to come across and make your own opinions about. So he goes on to say, uh, King Og, spoken of in Deuteronomy 311, uh, whose iron bedstead was approximately 14 feet by 6 feet wide. And they say King Og was at least 12 feet tall. And some people claim up to 18 feet tall. Next point, a 19-foot, 6-inch human skeleton found in 1577 A.D. under an overturned oak tree in the canton of Lucerne. A 23-foot-tall skeleton found in 1456 A.D. beside a river in Valence, France. A 25-foot, 6-inch skeleton found in 1613 A.D. near the castle of Chamon in France. This was claimed to be a nearly complete find. And here's the camper. Almost beyond comprehension or believability was the find of two separate 36-foot human remains uncovered by the Carthaginians somewhere between 200 and 600 B.C. So, you know, as you go back in time, it gets more and more unbelievable and huge. And harder to find the remains. Exactly, because they're lost to time, probably. Or they're in a secret vault somewhere. So from our perspective, I think Scott and I are pretty similar on this point. It's just too hard to tell. The more way out you get, the harder it is to prove these things. And we kind of have to reserve judgment until we find more proof or find that warehouse or that crate. We're going to have to reserve judgment on the way out stuff there. But seven to eight, nine feet tall? I think so. I think it's possible. But that's all in the olden days. Isn't there something that's kind of contemporary, modern? as we wrap out this show, there is one last story that I feel like we have to mention. Oh, you got it. Come on. Yeah. This is is a bit of a crazy story that took place in Afghanistan, in near, or I guess near Kandahar? Well, he's known as the Giant of Kandahar. The Giant of Kandahar. In uh, around 2002, I believe. Uh, well, when we were there. Yeah. Somewhere uh, a ways back there. And this story's a little crazy. This was about a special ops unit, a U.S. military special ops unit, that had encountered something in a cave that came at them, and that according to a description made by two supposedly special ops team members... People have come forward. Soldiers have come forward. Well, yes, yeah. but they, you know, they from the back in hoodies with their voices oh, disguised. Okay. But yeah, uh, they have come forward and said that this 15-foot man, huge guy, comes out of this cave with like a 20-foot spear, flaming red hair, and is attacking them. Yeah. And they're shooting and shooting with fully automatic special ops weapons. Yeah, they're emptying it, clips into the sky including with no a 50, effect. Including a fifty caliber. Really? Yeah. And yeah. In this, according to the story, and it's it's having an effect, but it's taken a long time to have an effect. Yeah. And eventually they fell this 
guy, this huge guy who's just roaring and yelling, not even really talking. So it's, it's the implication that is that it's a kind of a primitive man, but it did have clothes. He's a wild man. A wild Picture man. Picture that in your head. Like, you know, yeah, giant mane of hair and beard, uh, really horrible smell about him. Yeah. And just it, putrid. And yeah. eventually they they take him out. And he's so he's, Well, after he spears one of our soldiers. Oh, that's right. He it, that's right. He impaled a soldier, picked him up all the way off the ground, ran him through with his spear. So this this soldier, theoretically, I think his name was Dan, was lost in this operation. And then they radioed it in, and a helicopter came, and they had to put a net under it, and they carried it off. The helicopter carried it away. And there's another story with corroboration. (laughs) Very good. uh, Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I said it wrong again, like, Uh, last week or the week before. I just want everyone to know it was 1.45 (laughs) in the morning. We were very tired. Yeah. Yeah. We don't always get out of here when we think we're going to. But anyway... Uh, there was another soldier, and he corroborated the story. He did not know the people, supposedly, that were involved in this first encounter, who indicated that his unit, also a special ops team, their training had shifted, and they had been instructed whenever they were entering a cave to aim very high. <laughs> yeah. So, and they, supposedly they, these guys didn't know each other. This was all in a video that uh, L.A. Marzuli had posted. We'll, we'll have it in our show links. It's pretty fantastical, but it, it is, I got to be honest, it's fun to watch. It's, and, it's and popped the idea up a few it's, times. Yeah, yeah, it's popped up a few times. And there, there, so there's this idea that these wild 15-foot tall giant cavemen are living today in the remote regions of Afghanistan. Well, singularly, by themselves, kind of like, I guess, hermits. So I guess it's a race, but not they're not all together. Well, if you've got to do, there's got to be a lady somewhere, because you can only well, live so long well, by yourself. Well, hey, these are mythical beings. You know, oh, saying? I see we, what you're we, saying. You're we, going the full God route here. Half I God. think what you say, 15-foot tall wild man, yeah. <laughs> spearing people, I think you're already in that realm. Right, you know right, right. Not, yeah, it's we're a valid past, point. We're, a valid point. That, that's what, that was my point earlier, Scott, is that I think if you there was a nine foot tall at the end of that spectrum, an eight to nine foot tall guy. You know, he can't be that old. You don't, you know, it's very hard to live that way anyway. And if he's living in a cave, that's a one off. What we're talking about here is the giants of the Bible, really, or the, you know, the giants of legend, of ancient legend. And that is another type of being altogether. But I was going to ask you to recap, uh, because, of course, we looked this up on Snopes. And uh, you know, yeah. Snopes is going to say, yep, all true. Well, Snopes, no. Yeah, they, they they went off on this story. They essentially said that there was no evidence of this particular soldier with this name being lost in an operation. And that there were no reports. There were no military reports anywhere indicating an encounter with a giant. Well, to which I would say I have tremendous respect for Snopes. Yeah, I sure. love Snopes. I send people Snopes links all the time. Be like, you believe to this? Read this Snopes yeah, on yeah. it. I'm a huge fan of them. Apparently, they're in trouble. I hear they might be going out of business. What? But Who's going to? I don't know. We I don't can't know. do it. But yeah. <laughs> my point is the way that they went about debunking this has no merit, in my opinion, because <sighs> yeah. whatever a special ops unit is doing, right or wrong, giant or just normal people, you're not going to find a lot of reports about their activities. No. And especially if they're some crazy anomalous encounter like that. Right. Secondly, just because the name doesn't line up with this guy who was lost during the operation, if this really happened, right. that doesn't make sense either. Because if you're if if you believe any of this at all, but if you if you believe that these <laughs> yeah. soldiers that you'll see in the Marzulli video who are have their voices disguised and are wearing hoodies and being shot from the back, if you believe 
that they're special ops guys and they lost somebody and they're doing all that to disguise themselves, the other thing they're going to do is not say the dude's real name. Yes, So Snopes' debunking of it doesn't hold up to me in this particular case. On the other hand, the story itself doesn't hold up either. (laughs) So where are you? I don't know. Exactly. It's It's just, it's a fanciful tale. But it's crazy to think about. Oh, and the the Marzulli video, just the animation is, I mean... I, I, Very graphic novel-esque, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's something. Let's let's wrap this show up. I feel like it's well, time to talk a little bit about our conclusions. Yeah, go ahead. But what do you? Well, I mean, start off with that. What do you? What do you think of that tale that you just told with us? The, you, the giant of Kandahar? Yeah. Well, it has all the makings of a great legend, and that's something that I like about it. But let me ask you this then. Because you, you've, I've warped you a little. This show has warped you a little since yeah. we first started. No, well, Skinwalker lot, Ranch warped But me. you're a little, you're more pliable. You're a little more flexible. And uh, yeah. not that you were rigid thinking. I think you, and I don't like to use the term agnostic with this kind of thinking, but I think you, you were like, well, show me a case that I can't explain. Show me something that just kind of blows my mind and leaves me thinking. And I think we've seen that. From a few stories over the, yes, these, we have. these years now, these few years that we've been doing this. It's so, a low percentage, but they're there. And it's, as we always say, it only takes one. It only takes one encounter. <laughs> it only takes one yeah, time yeah. for something to create a, a shift for you. Right. So the question to you is something that's really gargantuan. And I mean, yeah, 11, 12, 14, 15 feet, maybe more. What's your thought on that? Possible at all? Ever in antiquity? I think in the history of, of humankind, I think it's remotely possible, but only as an anomaly. Okay. I, I don't think it's possible if there's not a pathological reason for it. And in fact, uh, you know, the Guinness Book of World Records in 1981 cites Angus McCaskill as being the largest non-pathological giant in recorded history. He was seven feet, nine inches tall. There's pictures of him. Yeah. That's now, I, the, the thing is, I don't know how they know that it wasn't pathological. I, I don't think there was any evidence that there was an autopsy done on him. It, he may have just been undiagnosed well, with, uh, that, with acromegaly another, or yeah, gigantism. That's, that's exactly what uh, his parents Carl were, said. His parents were normal height. So Right, but that's exactly what Carl said, is that a lot of times those conditions are misdiagnosed or not diagnosed correctly. Yeah. So I, I don't... This guy's only a, a little over a foot shorter than Robert Wadlow, and there's a picture of him on the Wikipedia page about him. He's yeah. from Scotland. Pretty ma- All roads lead to Scotland. It's, it's <laughs> pretty amazing. People, yes. Yeah, all tall people. That's pretty amazing. But I, I don't know. I have a hard time believing in entire species right. of giants that's completely been lost. We're not finding anything. I think there were misidentified fossil finds in the early days of archaeology. Right. I think there were other factors going into it, uh, uh, not too different from what uh, Jason Colavito said about yeah. ice and freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing, stretching out skeletons, that sort of thing. All of that does make sense to me. But I also believe there were some probably exceptionally tall tribes and chieftains and shamans and uh, because that's what happens with the tall people in thinking of that and kind of getting to my conclusions here about what's possible my eyes were opened a little because I, i was more thinking that these were anomalies here and there and maybe you have somebody who was very tall i you know i don't know the limit but I was not aware that the average height of some of these north american tribes i knew that the some were tall i didn't realize like really, like six to seven feet and maybe beyond seven feet. And so I can see why these stories build. And going back to Brad Lockwood, the first explorers traveling the waterways see these giant earthworks and they just think, man, that is a lot of work. There must have been giants that that built these. So I can see how that thinking has evolved. And again, I have started to formulate this barrier in my mind of what's possible. And so going off of the scientific principles, 
of what the human body as we know it now can endure the physiology that uh, of, of our structure and you know bones and and uh, circulatory systems what we can endure then i'm gonna i'm gonna have to say eight to nine feet is the limit and so bones being found even the stories thereof make sense to me and it's possible and we don't have any today it's hard to it's nothing we can really measure but i don't think they're all hoaxes so that leads us into the second big question about all this business about giants and that is is there a conspiracy actively or passively even going on to suppress information that has been found in the past or possibly kept on files somewhere in the secret vaults of these institutions and I don't think we have enough information right now or proof to point to that, but that is certainly believed by these people who are on the believing end of the spectrum, that there is a suppression going on. I I haven't seen it, of course. You know, it's secret. It's like, the, well, there's no, you know, there's no dead soldier here with a, with a spear mark through him. Or it's like, well, you're not going to find that. So me saying like, well, I haven't seen any proof of that. It's like, I don't know. I, I, can't, uh, I can't go there. What I do know or what I would believe just as the, the general tone of people when if you do meet somebody in these fields of archaeology and anthropology, uh, just go ask them about giants. <laughs> if you meet them one at a party, go, go have them tell you about, uh, what do you think about giant people, 15 feet, 20 feet tall? See what their reaction is. You're, you're going to get an eye roll. You're going to get a chuckle. It's not taken seriously by them. And I'm not saying it should. I'm just saying like, I think that's the prevailing attitude. It's like, yeah, I don't, we don't bother with this kind of stuff. And we see it in other fields too. It's just like if you talk to people in, in the scientific field about these other you know, way out kind of theories, they might have some fun entertaining the idea with you, especially if it's at a party or something. But they're not going to spend a lot of serious time learning about this unless it's a personal passion. And then you've got to be careful because these are things that kind of really can really taint your career. So do I think that, you know, they would take a find of giants seriously? I, I think under certain conditions where they would have to. Well, things rewrite the history books all the time. I mean, just this past couple of weeks, they've been, all that news has been coming out, especially in National Geographic, about the LIDAR used to discover this settlement in Mexico that was overgrown and couldn't be seen. Right. That now turns out to be the size of Manhattan with as many buildings that no one was aware of up until now. Yeah. it's And that's a rewrite the history books situation. And there's probably plenty of people you could have talked to a few months ago before that report came out who all would have said, that's impossible. There's oh, no sure. way there's anything like that in Mexico. We right. would know it. Right. Well, there you go. I, I think it's, we've said this before, even with the discovery of this village that has been grown over, you're still going to have camps of academics and archaeologists and anthropologists debating the meaning of this, the origin, what, it, you know, what was their culture like? You're still going to get camps that don't agree with each other. But I think overall, that, that's within the realm of possibility, obviously, if they found it. But the report that a 15-foot giant popped up somewhere, again, unless it's something they can't ignore, I don't think those things are going to be taken seriously by mainstream academia. But just human beings in general, our attitudes about very tall people, giants of the time, what we do know is that we've always revered them. We've made them our kings, our tribal leaders, our best warriors. The nice ones. The nice ones. Well, even the... even the. I mean, Carl talked about that one that got, what, his hands got cut off and thrown in the water or something. <laughs> Antwerp. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Even if he's on your side, look, Goliath wasn't a good guy. I don't believe he was a Philistine, but he was fighting for them. So even if he's a bad guy, and your other bad guys were seen that way, hey, if we pay this guy enough, he's going to fight for us. 
So there are prized individuals throughout all of antiquity. They are exalted and respected to a point, and then we start to fear them, and then we must destroy them. That's going to wrap up our series on giants. A very special thanks to Carl Stryken for taking the time to talk to us. We'd also like to thank Micah Ewers for sharing so much information about his research. We'll be back next week with our 100th episode, Archipelousa. You are not going to want to miss it. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on at Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Good evening. My name's Adam. Hi. And my name's Matt. Hi. I'm Jen Cash. I'm Tracy Forbes-Bosley. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia 